Do you have an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty whether it would ever be appropriate to do a history and physical exam in five minutes or less? You know, the first thing to talk about is, is whether or not we can just diagnose this clinically, right? Whether or not we need imaging at all. But with some very mild traction on the upper lid, I was able to see the iris and the round pupil, as well as appreciate what seemed to be anterior bulging of the sclera. I wish we didn't have to talk about it, frankly, because they're usually pretty horrific cases when you first see them. Tularemia, ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Did I miss something? No. Oh, an alpha gal. Okay. <laughs> we who linger while the days shyly bud and bloom anew are content that all the maze faithful are, steadfast and true. Hey, I don't get it. Yeah, well, that's your problem. Next week, I'm doing limericks, so uh, hang on to your butts. Welcome, everyone. This is May 2022 MRAP, and I'm back with Swami. Swami, how you doing? Jen, it's great to be back. May is uh, one of my favorite months. I know we, we talk about the months a lot, but this one's one of my favorites because, uh, Jan, it's both of our birthday month. It is our birth month. We share it. It is a fantastic month. Happy birthday, John. Happy birthday, Swami. <laughs> Always love May. Always love May. And, and I hope that when people go and Google their birthday, if they happen to share a birthday with us, our names come up. You share a birthday with Jan Schoenberger. I want that to happen. So anybody out there with a May 31st birthday, we're birthday buddies. So we'll celebrate together. <laughs> Yeah, May is also the gateway to summer, so it's like a great month for, you know, just sort of celebrating this barbecues, weather's getting good. There's just a lot of good things in May besides the birthday. And speaking of good things, Jan, I have a really good case. Not, not good for the patient, but good for us to talk about. Okay. Let's hear it, Swami. The case. All right, let's get into it. So I'm working in Fast Track, and Fast Track, not my favorite place to work, but every once in a while we have to go over there. And as we've talked about before, Jan, our job in Fast Track is to really sort through those cases and find the small handful of patients who are mistriaged and they're actually really super sick and they're in the wrong area. So I am flipping through the board and I come up with a 33-year-old man with a chief complaint of finger pain. Sounds like a pretty benign chief presentation in the grand scheme of things. And I quickly look at his vitals in the EMR. They're all normal. But as I am going over and walking into that room, I'm thinking about what diagnoses should be going through my head. So Jan, if you have that patient pop up on your tracking board and you're going into that room, what's going through your head of, of what you have to consider? Well, first, if it's you know morning time and I'm in the middle of drinking my coffee, I'm gonna finish my coffee. I'm not rushing off to see the patient. You know, I'll be honest with you, but and I'll get there and I'm gonna be interested in his finger pain for sure. And okay, I'm going to be asking, you know, if there's trauma or not. I'd like to know a little bit about the timeline. How did it start? What did they notice first? You know, those kinds of questions. And Jan, a caffeinated physician is a good physician. So it's important to get that caffeine in before you see that patient. I go in and, and I talk to him and he says, you know, he's been having finger pain and swelling for about two days. He noticed the pain first and then he noticed the swelling. There's no trauma, but he thought maybe I got a bug bite or something like that, but no real trauma to the finger. Over the next 12 hours, the finger became really swollen and red. Now he can barely bend it. And he comes in because when he went to work, he's like, well, I can't work because I can't put my glove on my hand to do my job. So I guess I should get checked out. Got it. Okay. So that description is making me think about infection. And of course, under the umbrella of infection, I'm thinking about, is it a felon? Is it a um, cellulitis? Could it be a flexor tenosynovitis comes to mind, particularly with your description of it being kind of like the whole finger and he couldn't put a glove on. 
So tell me about which finger it is. And I, of course, I want to know how does it look? This is his third digit. It's swollen from the tip all the way down to the MCP. It's red. It's angry. And you mentioned flexor tenosynovitis and cellulitis and felon or felon. And all of those can present with swelling and redness, making it really hard to differentiate between those two. So if you're thinking about those and you see that red angry finger, how are you differentiating between those three diagnoses? Mm, Well, the physical exam is going to tell us a lot. And of course, there are some cardinal signs that we want to look for. So I'm going to be looking for some specific things, some cardinal signs. Well, let's play a little bit of a game here, Jan, because I think that the cardinal signs you're hinting at are the canaval signs. And I'm going to give you 10 points each. If you get all four canaval signs, you get 40 points. There's no prize, Jan, but you do get the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you would get this question right on the boards. Yes, this is one I actually know. And I'll tell you why. The reason is because all I have to do is picture one of these fingers, because I've seen it before, and I can just picture the exam, and I don't have to memorize these. They just come to mind. So that finger is held in a little bit of flexion. I know that if I start to bend it backwards and do a little passive extension, there's going to be a lot of pain, especially proximally. There's going to be what they call fusiform swelling. I remember that. So it's got fusiform swelling. And I know that if I palpate down that flexor tendon sheath, it is going to be quite tender, again, particularly proximally. You know, what's interesting to think about on these cardinal signs is not only what they are, but what they aren't. And as you notice, you know, redness and color and warmth is not part of it. And that's not included because it doesn't differentiate. That was so good, Jen. That is four out of four, 40 points. You would definitely pass that part of the boards. If there was a board exam just on flexor tenosynovitis, you got 100%. Excellent. 10 points to Gryffindor. Absolutely perfect. And you're right. When you see a case, once you see a case, it's hard to forget what that finger looks like, which makes it kind of easy to know what you're looking for. So we go back to the patient and he's got that fusiform swelling. Some people call it the sausage digit because it kind of kind of looks like a little sausage. And that's exactly what his finger looks like. It is held in flexion and, and it's held in flexion because that increases the space in the flexor tendon, makes it less painful. He does have it held in, in flexion. When you extend it, he's not very happy. He's in a lot of pain when you try to extend that finger. And he's got quite a bit of tenderness along the flexor sheath. So he's got four out of four of those canaval signs. And there's limited literature on how canaval signs actually perform. But the best literature tells us that it's pretty good. Specificity in the 50 to 60% range, sensitivity in the 90s. So best case, a likelihood ratio of around three and a negative likelihood ratio that's actually quite powerful at 0.04. So it's not a slam dunk when you see those things, but it should get you really, really concerned which means that if you're really, really concerned about a flexor tenosynovitis, you're going to get on the phone with your consultant and have them come down to help you with deciding exactly how that patient is going to be managed. Now, I put that phone call in, and that might be to orthopedics, might be to hand surgery. In the meantime, what should I be doing with that patient while I'm waiting for that consultant to call back? I agree with calling the consultant. And I know that, you know, to me, normal labs aren't going to talk me out of this, but I know that my consultant is going to want some labs. That's just how they are. They're going to want the CBC. They're going to want the ESR, CRP, inflammatory markers, you know, maybe a metabolic panel, and they're going to want imaging. You know, if you're calling an orthopedic surgeon, they're going to want an x-ray. So go ahead and get the x-ray. And there's some value to it. You can be looking for a foreign body. You know, is there gas? Is there evidence of osteomyelitis? So there's value there. And I think there's also value in getting that workup done right away. It's not worth arguing with your consultant about whether you need these things or not. You know, they're going to want them. So go ahead and get them done to facilitate your patient moving through that process. 
And when we look at all of the references, even from the orthopedic and hand surgery literature, they'll tell you that ESR, CRP, white blood count should be elevated, but they won't always be elevated. So we can't always rest our hat on those giving us the diagnosis or clinching the diagnosis, but we're probably going to get those tests done knowing in the back of our head to not let them lead us astray. If the white count's normal, if the ESR is normal, if the CRP is normal, don't say, well, this can't be a flexor tenosynovitis. I don't need to get my consultant involved. And unfortunately, Jan, that's exactly what happened in this patient. I, I got all of those tests done knowing my consultant's going to ask for them. And the consultant calls me back and says, well, the white count's normal, the ESR is normal, the CRP is normal. Do you really think that this is a flexor tenosynovitis? Do you think maybe we can give this guy antibiotics, send him home and follow up in clinic? And I think that there is a little bit of an impetus to say, let me disposition this patient. Inflammatory markers are normal. Maybe I'm overcalling it. Give him some antibiotics, send him on his way. Yeah, I can see why that might be the case. But I also, boy, you know, years of experience just teach you that these labs just aren't perfect in our exam. We should trust it, right? And so this is one of those diagnoses that you definitely don't want to miss. You know, this is flexor tenosynovitis is a surgical emergency in the hand surgery world. And, and the reason is because, you know, you have this bacterial infection, this pyogenic infection running along that limited space inside the tendon sheath. And it's a big deal. If you miss it, if you call this wrong and you don't drain that abscess inside this limited space, you can get tendon necrosis, you can get chronic adhesions, which limit function, you can get osteomyelitis. And, you know, that functionality of the hand is something we really are careful about. So it's something you don't want to mess with. And calling it either flexor tenosynovitis or cellulitis really does change the treatment. Because like you said, this is a surgical process, it's a surgical problem. These hand infections can really cause, like you said, a lot of morbidity, so we have to really be on top of them. So we decided we're going to push and say, you know, I understand that the inflammatory markers aren't elevated, but I'm really worried about this guy's finger. Come down, take a look. Let's decide together about what we want to do. And in the meantime, we decided we're going to start IV antibiotics on this patient because we know we don't want to send this patient home. We're not comfortable with that disposition. What's the typical regimen that we should be reaching for when we're worried about that diagnosis? Well, like most infections, of course, I'm thinking about what the typical organisms are and what the immune status of the patient is. So if it's a normal patient with a typical mechanism, that makes it a little bit easier. And of course, I'm going to pop into Corpendium and I'm going to look up the antibiotics if I'm not sure and it's going to help me. And of course, they're there, you know, so I can go look it up. That's always helpful. So, you know, if it's a typical mechanism, normal person, I'm going for usual gram positive coverage with some limited gram negative coverage with our, you know, the old IV cefazolin is a good choice. If it's an immunocompromised person and I'm looking for more extended coverage, maybe it's a bite wound, something like that, I might go with something like ampicillin sulbactam. That would be a good choice too. And then of course, if you're talking tendon, I have to think about GC gonococcus. And if that's a possibility based on some additional questions, I might do ceftriaxone. I think it's a pretty good approach. The one thing that I kind of thought about too, or I always think about with these skin and soft tissue infections are if the patient has a history of MRSA in the past or multiple abscesses, then I'll probably go a little bit broader with my vancomycin instead. This guy's never had anything like that before. At the time, we weren't sure about cefazolin versus ampsalbactam, so we decided to go a little bit broader coverage. We went with the ampsalbactam because we weren't quite sure what the best approach was going to be. And ortho came down, saw the patient, and was pretty impressed with the swelling despite those inflammatory markers but didn't think that the patient needed to go to the operating room. So we chatted about it a little bit and we decided, you know, why don't we put the person in observation? We'll put him in elevation. So we'll get one of those Carter blocks from the OR so that his hand is nice and elevated. We'll start the IV antibiotics and we'll give him 24 hours. And if the swelling has gone down and the finger looks better after 24 hours of IV antibiotics, 
fantastic. We saved the trip to the OR, but if he doesn't look better, we can go to the OR at that point. Yeah, I think that's okay. As long as the patient's not being sent home, I'm sort of okay with the plan. I mean, you know, when you're dealing with surgeons and, you know, they don't want to take someone to the OR, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't force their hand. Now, I would say you and I work in teaching institutions. So in cases like this, I always want to make sure that someone who's more senior, who has more exam experience, has been involved in this decision making because based on what I've heard of this patient, you know, the exam really concerns me. So I'd want to make sure I march it up the chain. But if everybody on the team, including the attending, feels like this is what they want to do, well, then, you know, what are you going to do? I think that at least they're not sending them home. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'd be disappointed they're not going to the OR, and I'd be curious to see what happened. I'd be following up on that chart later. And I think one of the things to, to consider here is that in the past, flexor tendon synovitis was always taught to us as they all need to go to the OR, they all need to be open, they all need to be drained and debrided. And part of maybe why that doesn't always happen is because we're catching patients a little bit earlier in the disease process before they get to that stage. So maybe that's why we can try. And either way, I was kind of happy with the final of we're going to keep them, we're going to do IV antibiotics, and we'll keep checking on them and see what changes. And after 12 hours, the patient was stayed overnight, had IV antibiotics, and at 12 hours, we really didn't see much of a difference. Ortho decided to send the patient now for an MRI to get a little bit more information. And actually, this was a big learning point for me, Jan. MRI can't give you this diagnosis. It can tell you that there's inflammation of the flexor tendon sheath, but it can't tell you why there's inflammation. So MRI is not the ideal modality. Actually, there really is no ideal imaging modality here, but they got that MRI it showed inflammation, but again, nonspecific, didn't know what to do. And so at that point, they decided, we just got to take this person to the OR and see. When they opened up that finger, they did find purulent material in the sheath. And ultimately, the patient got that washout, the debridement, and did pretty well. I'm glad to hear that. And you said there's no perfect imaging modality, but I would argue that there is, and is the surgeon's retina. That is the perfect <laughs> imaging modality. It's true. It's true. And I feel like I should have used that line. <laughs> right at the start and said, you know, the only way to make this diagnosis is with your expert eye on the patient's finger. And, and maybe that would have really brought that surgeon down to the bedside right away. But I loved your point about pushing this up the ladder, getting an experienced surgeon involved, because you're right. If you haven't seen a couple of these cases, you don't really know. And we don't really see the patients taken to the end, right? They don't, we don't see them go to the OR and see what happens in there. But the surgeon can give us a little bit of that perspective of seeing the patient from start to finish. And I think it really helps if you work in a place with trainees, with residents, that getting that expert surgeon to the bedside can help with the disposition. Ultimately, Jan, we're going to make this diagnosis on our clinical exam. And I think that's what we really need to focus on. We have to know the signs of flexor tenosynovitis, understand how to differentiate it from a simple cellulitis or a felon, get those inflammatory markers, but understand they're not always going to be elevated and they're not going to clinch or rule out the diagnosis. And finally, when in doubt, you can play it conservative. Keep the patient in the hospital for IV antibiotics, elevation, and serial assessments. All right, Jan. Well, there's our case. I think it's a, a good learning case in terms of making that clinical diagnosis, pushing for the things that you know that patient needs. And with that, let's jump into the content that we have on MRAP this month in the show. There's a couple of segments I really, really enjoyed, but the one that I love the most was near hanging injuries with Swadron and Kenji. We've actually gotten multiple emails from our listeners asking to do this topic, to do the hanging injuries, the near hanging injuries in terms of how we have to work those patients up. Who better than to have Kenji on to really spell all of that out? Yeah, it is a great segment. It's a two-parter because there's so much good stuff in there. Um, my favorites this month, I enjoyed Gita and Jesse's conversation about tick-borne illnesses. It's one of those 
kind of core content reviews, so reviewing things that you don't see very often, so I enjoyed that. And then Susie Demeester and Mike Weinstock talked about a case of myocarditis, and that's also a diagnosis that kind of fascinates me because it can be a little bit elusive, and I enjoyed that talk. Perfect timing for those tick-borne illnesses, just to review those in your head as we enter the summer when, let's be honest, we're going to see a lot more of those. And with that, Jan, we are going to launch into the month. We're going to hear what all of our amazing faculty have to tell us. And Jen, we'll be back in the mailbag, and I can't wait to see you on the other side. Yeah, see you on the other side. Let's go. Come on, let's just go. Rural Medicine Talks. So I was on call in a small remote hospital 18 hours into a 24-hour emergency room shift. And I was literally making up the bed in the call room, anticipating hopefully a few hours of sleep. That, of course, is Cardi V. That means that this is rural medicine. And it also means we're going to have a sick patient and nowhere for them to go. Upsetting. When I heard a ruckus at the front door. What ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? So I go out and I see the nurse helping a man through the waiting room towards the emergency room. I follow them and the little trail of blood that they were tracking into the emergency room and flip through the patient's chart while he's being triaged. Now, there wasn't much in his old chart, aside from a few visits from minor traumas that were mostly related to snowmobile accidents. So didn't really find too much in that chart. But a few minutes later, the nurse comes out of the patient's room and says, I don't know what's going on with his eye, but it doesn't look good. So that's never something that you really want to hear one of your experienced nurses saying to you. So I look over the triage sheet quickly, noting that he's tachycardic at 124, and his blood pressure is 168 over 93. But his SATs are 98% and he is afebrile. I head into the exam room and there he is writhing around on the bed with one hand covering his left eye. The right side of his face is visibly bruised and he has a subconjunctival hemorrhage on the right, a very extensive one. I ask him what happened and he starts to yell out in pain, saying that he's in too much pain to talk about this, that his left eye is burning and that I need to make it stop. Now he's clearly intoxicated and he admits to having been on a drinking binge for a few days as well as having used some marijuana and cocaine. So that's complicating the picture a little bit. But apart from the writhing, he was still pretty cooperative. He said that he was walking down the street after a game of cards where he had won a lot of money and that he was suddenly jumped by a group of young men. They kicked him repeatedly in the face and head as well as in the midgut and the lower back. He said that they kept at it for what felt like hours, but based on timing that we pieced together afterwards, it was probably around five, maybe 10 minutes. And then he walked to the hospital by himself. He describes this burning pain inside his left eye that would come and go And he also said that when the assailants first left him, he was able to open his eye with a lot of pain and that his vision was not normal at that point. He described being able to see from the top half of his eye as if he could see everything in the upper portion of his visual field, but that the bottom half of his visual field was completely black. Now, it was difficult to examine him due to the writhing, but I did a quick primary and secondary survey, which aside from the facial bruising and swelling and a few abrasions on his flank, were totally normal. And then I zeroed in on his eye. Now, I remember being told in my training that if you suspect a globe rupture, then you shouldn't be prying the eye open and that you need to leave that to the ophthalmologists. But given I didn't have access to imaging or a consultant, I couldn't really call for a possible transfer of a patient without having done at least a cursory exam. So I approached the patient and his eye cautiously. Very dramatic, but these cases are dramatic. You're concerned that if you do an exam, that indeed the eyeball will go squish and the contents will be flying all over the emergency department floor. It's terrifying. 
that there was a ton of periorbital swelling and what were either tears or vitreous fluid pooling in his medial canthus. I pulled open the lids very carefully, and at first I could only see a mass of red and white. But with some very mild traction on the upper lid, I was able to see the iris and the round pupil, as well as appreciate what seemed to be anterior bulging of the sclera. He was able to move the eye and there was no clear sign of proptosis, so I quickly let go and told him to keep the eye shut. I was worried about facial fractures as well, so we called in the x-ray tech to do those facial views, and these confirmed what looked like bilateral orbital rim fractures. Luckily, there was no obvious opacification of either maxillary sinus, but there was so much soft tissue swelling sort of overlying it that there were shadows all over the place, and so I wasn't convinced of my read. In any case, it didn't really matter acutely because he could move his eyes, and none of this was going to actually change my management in my setting. This guy had already earned himself a trip to a tertiary care center and some TLC from an ophthalmologist. Now, as is often the case in these rural med situations, the next step was how to temporize the patient until he got to definitive care. My first priority was to protect the eye. Now, sometimes we have a wee plastic shield that we can use, but of course, we couldn't find one that night. In the past, when we couldn't find the shields, we've used those white styrofoam cups that are sort of ubiquitous in emergency rooms, but we were out of those too. So we went to the coffee machine in the waiting room, and we cut up one of those throwaway mugs with the coffee cup pictures on them. This was super classy. And I taped it down with so, so, so much tape and begged him not to touch it, which of course didn't work. We must have retaped that thing 1,000 times in the next several hours. Next up was trying to prevent his eye from getting any worse. He was clearly at high risk of infection, given the mechanism of injury and the amount of time it was going to take for an ophthalmologist to see him. He certainly didn't need a case of endophthalmitis on top of everything else that he was going to be dealing with. So we thought about what prophylactic measures we could take. We updated his tetanus vaccination because that was due, and then we pulled out the good old IV antibiotics. And based on what we looked up, we went with Vanco and Ceftaz. Well, I should say we would have used Ceftaz, but we didn't have any. So we went with Ceftriaxone. Now, what other things do you need to think about with a globe rupture patient? You want to try to keep them as calm and as relaxed as possible. So depending on your context, depending on the patient's underlying state, consider anxiolytics and analgesia. Try to keep them lying down and minimize any exertion on the part of the patient. You really, really want to drill it into their head that they need to be literally on bed rest. Depending on the patient, this could include maybe even considering a Foley catheter to help minimize the sort of changes in blood pressure and changes in position that they'll have to use to get up and go to the bathroom. This can also, of course, be useful if, if the patient's going to be going on a long flight. And along with that, think about antiemetics because we don't want this poor patient retching or straining in any way. So for this guy, I ordered someone Dancentron and IV fluids and regular Accutex. Of course, having the patient not be acutely intoxicated would certainly have helped in this situation, and I considered sedating and intubating the patient in order to better protect his eye, but then I thought about it. It was going to be at least eight hours from now that he would be seen if all went well in terms of transport. And of course, there could be weather delays and the risk of having an intubated patient lying in our small emergency room for hours without an RT or critical care nurse or doc to be constantly monitoring them. Well, I think you can see where I'm going with this. I chose not to intubate him because I figured losing an eye was better than losing neurologic or cardiac function if the intubation went poorly and if he had other intoxicants on board and things got hairy and we had him stuck in our emergency department for ages. And in the end, I'm really glad I made that decision because 24 hours later, he was still in our emergency room. Another more emergent case had come in 
and needed to be medevaced, so the plane for my guy was taken and he had to wait. So I was definitely lucky with that choice. Now, things got a wee bit bonkers in the emergency room at one point in the more than 24 hours we were waiting for his transport to arrive, because as it turns out, someone snuck in some vodka for him, so suddenly he was drunk again, which was a tad confusing. Well, it wasn't confusing when we realized he was drunk. What was confusing was that he started acting sort of a bit inappropriate, he was sort of had less of a filter, he was slurring his words, and seemed to be slightly disoriented. I was certainly worried that he was having an intracranial bleed from the head trauma until we noticed the vodka bottle tucked into his girlfriend's shirt. She hadn't closed it properly, so there was a leaking 40-ounce Smirnoff-shaped lump under her t-shirt, which kind of gave it away. <laughs> Nailed it. But all in all, he did really well, and after 36 hours post-injury, he was in the OR in the tertiary care center. It turns out that in addition to his globe rupture, he had bilateral orbital rim fractures, as well as some mid-face fractures. And while when I first saw him, my mind was saying, oh God, this is one of those big emergencies, you know, focus, don't freak out. It turns out that from an ER doc point of view, there wasn't really a ton to do. I had to protect the eye, prevent infection, and, you know, maybe discourage him from drinking in the exam room. In all seriousness, though, it was a great review for me of the checklist of things I needed to do for a globe rupture, as well as reminding me to tell the ward clerk to restock those eye shields, because nothing announces that you come from a remote hospital more than having a coffee cup taped to your face. If I were to read from, I don't know, Corpendium, it might say this for patients with globe perforation, elevation of the head of the bed, provide analgesia and antiemetics, avoid valsalva maneuver, obtain emergency consultation, prescribe prophylactic empiric antibiotics to reduce the risk of end ophthalmitis. Appropriate antibiotics include cefazolin or vancomycin with a fourth generation fluoroquinolone. And I would just emphasize what Cardi said. Sometimes these patients come in and there is so much swelling, it is all but impossible to get an exam outside of the operating room. In those cases, CT scanning can be extraordinarily helpful. Its sensitivity for globe rupture is upward of 90 plus percent. But don't be lazy. Don't use a little bit of swelling as an excuse to not do an exam. You should always try and get an exam and try and get some visual acuity and look at that pupil. But sometimes you just can't. Her name's Katie V. Rural Medicine. It's good stuff. And I love that 24-hour wait time. Upsetting. It's time again for... Scott Weingott. Critical Care. Mailbag. Scott, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, what's up, Swami? What's up, man? Not much, not much. Now, a lot of times we get emails from the listeners... Or you email me and say, hey, I heard this segment by X, Y, or Z person, and I got some thoughts. This one is one that you emailed me and said, I got some thoughts on something you said. And I don't feel totally comfortable with this, but you know what? I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn by doing this. And actually, this was a while ago. This was April Yeah, I don't even remember what, uh, what you said that sparked this, so you'll have to refresh uh, yeah, my memory. I, uh, well, it was a case that I discussed with Jenny, and we were talking about a severe asthmatic patient. And so in that segment, we talked about the patient obviously being very sick, very tachypnic, really not looking very good. The, the one who's asking for an intubation and how we were doing everything to avoid that intubation. Ah, yes. Okay. And so this, this patient, we, we threw everything at him. We did the IM epi, we did the IV epi, we gave magnesium, we gave fluids. We didn't discuss a lot about ventilation and, and non-invasive. And, and perhaps, because I know how you feel about non-invasive, maybe that's where we went astray. So you wanted to get into this topic. Let's go. What's your bone to pick? Okay. And this is fairly an evidence-free zone. So don't get all upset because 
It's not that there's evidence against what I'm saying. It's that no one has looked at the stuff I'm talking about. And I guess the first thing I would say about your severe asthmatic is it's not what you were told in medical school. And everyone, t- well, which phase of respiration is the problem in asthma, Swami? Let's see how indoctrinated you were. Well, it's, it's, it's all about exhalation. It's they all about exhalation. Exhale, they breath stack and they die. It's an expiratory phase disease. And this was that's pounded right. into us. And it is. And that's what asthma is until it's not. And this is the thing you need to understand is there's two presentations of a really sick looking asthmatic patient you're going to get in your ED you know, accepting other things going on, like a straight up asthmatic that comes in. They're going to present two ways. Now, the one that they teach you in the textbooks is the bronchospastic asthma patient, right? And, you know, their chest is completely silent and you try to bag them, you know, in preparation for your intubation and you can't even squeeze the bag. The mask is lifting off their face because they're so tight that you can't put gas into them. And these patients are, you know, at the verge of death. This is what everyone thinks their asthma patient is when they come in. And I haven't seen one of those patients in 10 years. It might even be 15. In any place where there's a reasonable access to good medical care, primary care, the patients are on bronchodilators, they might be on long-acting bronchodilators, they might be on intermittent steroids, you don't see these anymore. They're incredibly rare. Now, you're still going to see them in places that don't have good access to primary care. But I haven't seen one of these in either of the places I work at for, it might be more than 15 years. The other presentation you're going to see is these patients that have gotten into a vicious cycle with their asthma of respiratory muscle fatigue and then therefore hypercapnia, which, you know, the acidosis makes their respiratory muscles worse. And then they might even get a little bit of hypoxic when they start moving no gas at all into their alveoli. They might be breathing 40, 50 times a minute, but it's all just tracheal exchange. They're not getting anything to their alveoli. And they might be getting now at this point, in addition to their hypercapnia, hypoxemic. And all of that contributes to an encephalopathy. And all of that begets further respiratory muscle failure. And there's this horrible cycle. And they come in and you listen to their chest and it's silent, just like the bronchospastic patient. You know, they both have silent chest. And you're like, crap, I need to intubate this patient. And in the past, most of those patients would have been intubated. But the thing is, that second case might not have a significant barrier to actually getting gas in. So let's put these two situations in contrast. In one situation, the patient can't get any gas in because they're so bronchospastic that they just can't draw the gas. They can't get it through those incredibly tight bronchioles. In that second situation, there's no problem getting gas in. They just can't do it themselves because they have such profound respiratory muscle fatigue. And the treatment in these two patients is completely different because in that second case, their failure mode at this point is it's an inspiratory failure. It's no longer an expiratory failure. The problem is not getting the gas out. The problem is not gas trapping. The problem is not that their lungs are so inflated like they are in that first case that they can't get gas. And their problem is just they don't have the respiratory muscles to do it. And this, is, this second case is not spoken about very often in the literature on asthma. And yet, if you actually start thinking about it this way, you'll see it is the far more predominant presentation at this stage of the game. In that second case, if you start getting gas in, which you won't have a barrier to do, in fact, oftentimes it doesn't take any pressure higher than normal to get that gas in, 
the patients get better. And they get better without intubation. And so their only problem is you need to get their oxygen saturation up, which will happen instantaneously. The second you get a drop of gas at high FiO2 into their alveoli, their oxygen immediately improves. So automatically, you've taken that off the table. So let's, before we talk about BiPAP, let's say you just put a BVM on the patient's face and they were willing to tolerate that and you started bagging. You'd know instantaneously whether in the first category or the second, because in the first category, you barely bag them at all. In the second category, instantaneously, you could get some gas in. Their sat's going to get instantly better. And then if you could get them at a reasonable minute ventilation for a little while, their CO2 gets better. And then those two things together make their encephalopathy better. And then all of a sudden, the patient is better. And so you could do that with a BVM on their face. But better is to use a non-invasive setup. And what you will find is you will have an immediate differentiation on these patients between the first and the second category. If you put them on non-invasive and you know, you're truly trying to optimize your inspiratory pressures at this point, they don't need expiratory pressure at all. I mean, you can put them on three, four, five if you want. Machines generally don't go below three, but you don't need it. It's not helping. They don't need PEEP. These are not the COPDers with bronchial collapse. They just need inspiratory pressure. So you dial up your IPAP, 10, 15. You'll know instantaneously because if their tidal volume with that is nothing, then they're category one. If on the other hand, you're getting amazing tidal volumes at 10 or 15, which is often the case, then they don't need to be intubated. They just need to blow off their CO2 and get their SATs up with non-invasive. Now, sometimes the encephalopathy is a pain in the butt in this case because they won't keep the mask on because they're already crazy from their hypercapnia and hypoxia. And in that case, then we would give the patient ketamine at my places because it's going to keep them breathing. It has bronchodilatory effects. It has salutary effects on their lungs. But automatically, they're going to dissociate and let me keep the non-invasive on. And they'll immediately quiet out. You look down at the machine, they're getting perfect tidal volumes. Their SAT's 100%. Let them ride. Now, someone needs to stay in the room. You don't walk away with a dissociated non-invasive mask patient because you don't want them puking in their mask. So you stay in the room the whole time. You watch them like a hawk. They're not allowed to be alone at the bedside. Someone needs to be there right at the bedside watching them. And then 20 minutes later, they wake up and oftentimes they're done. Oftentimes they're completely past a patient who was at death's door when they arrived in that second category. On the other hand, if you put them on non-invasive and they're getting a 20cc tidal volume at 15 of IPAP, they're category one. That patient, if they're at this stage of the game, needs to be intubated with the understanding that in either case, intubation never does anything good by an asthmatic. Intubation is all net negative. Sometimes your hand is forced, but every part of intubating an asthmatic patient is net negative. Every part of it just makes the situation worse. So in a patient who comes in with severe asthma, for me, I would never wind up intubating them if they're breathing at all before I gave them a trial of non-invasive. The interesting thing here is that whether they're category one or two, if you intubate this patient, you run the risk of running into those exhalation issues if you don't manage the vent properly. So it can confuse, you're not going to be able to identify which those patients are if you end up intubating. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it gets worse because the nidus of bronchospasm gets much worse on the vent. And in general, unless you're a place that's really good, uh, the bronchodilator regimen disappears as soon as the patient gets put on the ventilator. And as a result, they just beget further and further bronchospasm. So, you know, it's sending them down a really bad path. And, you know, like I said, I haven't seen category one of the asthma I'm mentioning for, you know, 
over a decade and a half. I haven't had an intubated asthmatic who hasn't had something else going on. Obviously, you'll get a brain bleed asthmatic and you intubate them, and then you have to deal with them on the vent. But intubating for asthma just should not happen unless the patient comes in already being bagged because it's just every part of it is a bad package. It almost seems like what you're talking about here where they are so exhausted, their respiratory muscles aren't working, they get hypercarbic, they get acidemic, their muscles get worse because of that hypercarbia. It's almost like the copd that comes in with that hypercarbia and that respiratory fatigue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's a little bit more dramatic. The COPDers generally are the slow decline to a PCO2 of 160. Uh, the asthmatics, really, they tire out so quickly and the cycle is so vicious that they can look near death, but they are reversible. And you're not going to see RCTs on this because in order to do the RCT, I, you know, in fact, Swami, I take it back. You don't need an RCT on this. Here's what I will tell you. You could do a very good trial of taking the patient that you and Jan were talking about and at the point where you were going to intubate them anyway, gave them a trial of non-invasive. Every single one of those patients that wound up not getting intubated would be a clear banner signal that this works because the alternative was you were going to intubate them. And what you will see, if your experience is the same as mine, and I see no reason it shouldn't be, is that very few of these patients wind up intubated if you give them a trial of non-invasive first on arrival. You know, you need to be able to get this done quickly or just use the BVM. And most of these patients will get immediately better. And within the first few breaths, you'll know if they're in that incredibly intractable bronchospasm category where you're not going to win with non-invasive and then you should just intubate them. Yeah, well, you're never getting an RCT on this set of patients because they're too sick to enter into any study. And we don't see enough of them that you can really get this kind of a study done and really get the number of the patients. We've talked about this many times. How when you look at asthma, it's on this huge spectrum. The best we get is the severe asthmatic. We get some data on that group, but we don't get real data on the crashing asthmatic. And that's what we're talking about here. There's really nothing that exists. And so with those patients, you're going to do all of the things that Jenny and I talked about in terms of management, but getting that non-invasive on early is going to really change the course for this patient. And again, learning to get that non-invasive on, even if the patient is altered, like you said, they're encephalopathic from that hypercarbia and they're not going to tolerate it. You have to figure out a way to get them to tolerate it. And as you mentioned, ketamine again is going to be really helpful here to facilitate that process. And of course, when you do that, you're keeping a close eye on this patient. No one's leaving the room. And honestly, this is like the sickest patient in the hospital. Why is anyone leaving the room anyway? Yeah. You know, there's one more point, Swami, you're not going to like it. But the one other aspect I will quibble with, and you and I have spoken about this offline, so you already know, I think, what's coming, but we actually have a very good randomized control trial of severe asthma and whether magnesium has any benefit. We used to think it did. It had no benefit in mild or moderate asthma exacerbations, but we thought it did in severe. And now we have the 3MG RCT telling us that even in severe asthma, it doesn't work. Now, I'm not saying it's going to do any harm. You know, you knock yourself out, but just know probably not helping. You know, I can't disagree with you because that 3MG trial was really well done. And, and you say now we have, I mean, that trial has got to be like six years old. That's true. Point. I should have learned by now not to keep doing this. And I'll keep mentioning that pediatric study in an ICU, very small, showing a benefit from high dose magnesium. And again, we can't include these crashing asthmatics in these trials. And that's why it's really hard to get those good data. But you know, Scott, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I like giving the magnesium because I'm giving the epi, which is going to cause tachydysrhythmias, and the magnesium is just going to smooth everything out. So yep. I'm just canceling out what I've already provided the patient. All right. I like it. I like the <laughs> retrospective justification. Excellent. Swan. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I <laughs> no, wouldn't really get on anybody if they said, oh, I gave two grams of magnesium and I called it a day. 
I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pick with that, but I think the other maneuvers that we do are really important. Getting that epi because they're not getting inhaled beta agonists down early on. If you feel like they're not getting that in, getting the non-invasive on is so critical. I think that is really important. And it is a big change from where we were even five or 10 years ago in terms of how we manage asthma. Yeah. Well, that brings up a fantastic last closing point, which is again, since they now have a problem of inspiration in that category too, you're absolutely right. They will not be getting in your inhaled uh, bronchodilators. But when you put them on non-invasive, make sure your respiratory therapist inserts a limb to do the bronchodilators through that. And as long as they're getting tidal volume, they are getting those bronchodilators on the non-invasive. So even though they didn't respond to EMS's inhaled bronchodilators because they were not getting any actual gas in, does not mean they will not respond beautifully to yours once you put them on non-invasive. That's a really great point because I see this all this time where you start the non-invasive or if you have to, you're forced to, you intubate the patient. And then everyone's kind of like, okay, we've taken care of the issue and, and they stop doing all that maximal medical management. You got to make sure you're still doing all that stuff. Cool. All right, Scott, thanks so much. We will see you next month in the Critical Care Mailbag. Absolutely correct. The very tight, the very sexy, Dr. Kenji Inaba. All right, Kenji. So we're going to talk about something that's really important. I wish we didn't have to talk about it, frankly, because they're usually pretty horrific cases when you first see them, but near hanging injuries and strangulation. And I thought that we would use the corpendium format to lead us through this. So we're going to pretend we're first in the recess bay with a really bad patient, and then we're going to sort of move through some of the basic elements of diagnosis and treatment. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. I, I guess I didn't really give you a choice, did I? Just sort of say, <laughs> this, is, this is what we're doing. Near hanging injuries, part one. It's a very important topic. Unfortunately, we all see it. And there's definitely an impact, I think, on us as a team, because, you know, in the vast majority of these cases here in the U.S., there's an element of suicidality associated with it. So it really, it's a sobering thing. It's tough for the team. And I think on a personal level, these patients are often young. And I think that it's striking for all of us. And uh, it's, these are tough cases to deal with. So you know, doing our best to make sure that we do everything properly is so important. You know, it's, it's interesting because so many of our trauma specialty topics or subtopics are just like that, where it's like Burns was another example. And it's all about trying to focus on the basics and the ABCs because the actual thing, <laughs> the bad thing, the burn, the hanging is so distracting that it takes all we can muster to focus, like you said, on getting it right, because we just have to go back to basics. And if we do, we end up coming out okay on these, even though they're scary. Okay, so let me set the stage with the case. A 15-year-old boy is found in his bedroom, hanging from a rope attached to a light fixture. His breathing is labored, and he is responsive only to pain. He is periodically extremely agitated and combative. And so this really sets it up because it is more often the case than not that when the patients are altered, and again, I wish we didn't have experience with this, is that it's kind of scary in terms of the agitation. You're like, is this hypoxia? Is this from brain injury? But it's very common for them to be agitated. And the reason that's so scary is because you know the whole time, this is compromising airway, this is compromising breathing, and I have to stop it, right? Absolutely. And, and I think, uh, like you mentioned, there's all those different things that come into it. There's the intoxicants, drugs, other substances that we have to think about. And so as a general rule, right from the outset, I like to think of these patients, and I'm sure you do as well, as those that come in with a normal GCS. They're 15, 
and they're conversing and you get the history more from the EMS providers or from the patient versus what you're describing. And I think those are very distinct patient populations that we're dealing with. And and it's probably easiest to think of them in terms of those two uh, categories. Yeah. So in your mind, and I think this is really important to highlight, the approach to the critical patient in your mind, in Kenji's mind, is really the approach to anyone who doesn't look normal. And that's a really important point. It's easy to get discouraged when you see someone who's on the lower end of the GCS spectrum and you're like, ah, this isn't going to work out well. What a tragedy. But we have to keep in mind that that's an illusion that the prognosis in these cases is surprisingly good. And we have to remember that whether it's, it looks like bad brain injury, whether it looks like bad lung injury, because they can get that, we'll get into that in a second, they can recover and they do. I agree. So I think if the patient has arrested, that is a patient that's not going to do well. But everybody else that's between the GCS of 15 and cardiac arrest, I could not agree with you more. 100% max effort, you know, regardless of age, because it could be that what you're looking at is intoxicants or substances on board that's giving you this initial first impression. And those things are all potentially reversible. The actual incidence of a surgically correctable or need-to-be-surgically-corrected lesion is actually very low. And so for that reason, I think it's 100% worthwhile pushing forward. So I agree with you. So I'm going to take us actually right through these ABCs. And of course, as you know, that doesn't begin with A, really. It begins with C. And cervical spine has to be protected here. And it is true that the incidence of a C-spine fracture is higher with a sort of a judicial hanging, a completed hanging where there's a drop. It's a lot less likely in this patient's bedroom, right? Just, you know, just because of the mechanics of it. But it still happens. And the recommendation really is still really rigorous C-spine precautions for all these cases. Is that not correct? You can look at these large series that look at the near hangings, or you can look at series looking at the completed hangings. The reality is in both of these groups, because of the mechanism that you're talking about, these are not high-level falls at the end of a noose. They are usually done in a home, sometimes in public or at uh, a workplace, but they're very slow and there isn't that abrupt jerking motion on the spine. So as a direct result of that, the likelihood of a severe permanent cervical spine fracture is actually really low. And it is exceedingly rare that we will see that hangman's fracture. It just doesn't occur. And the incidence is low, but it's not zero. And because of that, it's definitely worthwhile protecting that spine. And just to clarify the terminology here, in case anyone was confused, when Kenji says that those hangings were completed, he means that they were unfortunately successful, they were fatal. That's not to be confused with the commonly used terms complete and incomplete hanging. A complete hanging is when the body is suspended and neither foot touches the ground, and an incomplete hanging is where some part of the body is touching. But the point is mostly academic. Most of the hangings that we are going to see from a home or an office environment are going to be of the low velocity type and are less likely to result in dramatic fracture patterns. All right, I want to talk about indications for intubation, Kenji, and I do want your input on this. I've sort of boiled it down into three categories. If there's any sign of airway obstruction, obviously strider, you know, I'm not going to tolerate that. That patient's going to be intubated right away. But that also includes looking a little bit around the corner. I mean, if there's signs of impending compromise, you've got multiple fractures, what happens with those? You know, you know they get a temetus. If there's sub-Q emphysema, what happens with that? We know it expands. So if there's any impending signs of obstruction, 
for sure. Those are one category. Then I have my second category, which is if there's any signs of pulmonary insult. If I'm hearing crackles on both sides, if the respiratory rate is up at 30, that's not getting better. They're suffering some insult that's probably going to get worse, not better. And so that's another big category for me. It also includes hypoxemia, same reason. And then the third one, this might be a little more controversial. I'd like to hear your, your take on it. But I would say significant alteration in mental status. You know, you see, you see in the books and you see in the references, you know, Glasgow of eight. I don't think that's good enough. I, I don't want to wait around in someone who, again, like this patient, is intermittently agitated, maybe getting their blood pressure right up, maybe really endangering the situation. I wouldn't put a hard and fast number. I think there's a lot of patients that have Glasgow's much higher than eight that really should be intubated for safety here. So those are my sort of categories. What's your take on all that? There are two points that I would make. I agree first with the not preemptive, but being very conservative when it comes to people that have these potentially, you know, the airway is not obstructed right now, but you know, over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, it can get worse. If you look at the injuries, the actual mechanical injuries that are by this mechanism, the reality is, again, although they are relatively infrequent, when they do occur, one of the major things that gets injured is the whole laryngeal tracheal complex. And the reality is we know that whenever you're going to constrict the neck, that's one of the first things to get injured, fractured, or even just crushed. And so that patient that comes in that has what appears to be a viable airway, but a tenuous viable airway, I think it's just safer to get that out of the picture. So I agree 100%. When you look at these airways, they really are fragile. And having a constricting object around the neck really can do a tremendous amount of damage to that uh, airway. And it's just right there. It's not protected by anything at all. So if you're worried that there's been damage that's done to that airway, it will get worse over the intervening next minutes to hours. And it's worth protecting uh, that patient. Now, as far as the GCS, yes. There's no good data that is going to support when it is that we should be intubating these patients. And, you know, to some certain extent, we're going to be relying on our judgment. And so I would agree with you. I think we ought to be cautious with them. These are patients that truly can survive. So we want to do everything that we can to optimize them. And oxygenation is a key component of that. The most important thing is the edema. Because they, you know, of the whatever, 5 to 10% of people that have an anatomic injury, half of them are going to be the airway. And, you know, the other question that often comes up is if we're forced to do a surgical airway, either because we couldn't intubate, the view wasn't uh, sufficient, or things cascade too quickly and you're forced to do that surgical airway, the reality is there are no changes that we're going to make to our traditional approach to getting that surgical airway. But I think everybody needs to be well aware that Again, one of the reasons why you're in that situation is probably because of the soft tissue swelling and edema and the damage. So it's well worth ensuring that all the things that we normally do to make sure that we get into the airway, we're extra cautious about that. So the length of the incision, for example, getting an assistant as much light as possible. And if you can't see, you may need to lengthen that incision more, especially if there's a lot of bleeding and soft tissue edema in that area. You've got to be aggressive to make sure that you really take a look to see exactly where it is that you're cutting down. And once you get down to the airway itself, anatomically, I would go for the same spot because of all the edema. And if there's a fracture to that area, it may be more difficult. But again, going to your basics and identifying the landmarks that we're looking for, 
your cricoid, your thyroid cartilage, and looking for the space. And what's that, in between yeah, them. And what's in between. <laughs> Thank you. That's the key. So I think that that's really important. Now, if that whole structure has been fractured and you simply, it's one big mushy mess, and the structures that we're looking for, the cricoid, the thyroid cartilage, those may actually be fractured. If you can't get the traditional hole into that traditional membrane, and you need to go into the trachea below the normal entry point, I think that's perfectly fine. Because if you really think about it, that is where we do all of our surgical airways in the traditional non-emergent situation. So the key is to get a tube into the airway regardless of where it goes in. Okay, perfect. And I added that, you know, for the children that are less than eight for sure, and unfortunately they are an important part of this demographic, we can go with the... uh, jet ventilation if we need to as an, an option as well. Whether it's in the child or in the adult population, it is a very effective way of uh, getting oxygen down the tube. Breathing. Moving on to breathing. We've already kind of covered that. Breathing is really important because it informs whether or not you intubate the patient. I alluded to that. And of course, we're looking for, for signs of pulmonary edema, ARDS. And I suppose that if you are intubating these patients, it would behoove you to follow the low volume ventilation strategies of the ARDSNET protocol. But other than that, I don't have any other particular things that you have to keep in mind. Do you have anything else for breathing? Yeah, you know, I would just say that it's interesting that when you do a literature survey like we did before this, and I know we both did independent uh, looks, there's a lot that has been written about this pulmonary edema that's associated with this uh, mechanism of injury. And it's interesting because we do see it in the most critically ill patients that come in, usually those that uh, are near arrest or that are very sick. But the reality is it's not very common. It also takes time for it to develop. So it's probably not, in most cases, something that's going to be seen in the emergency department setting. However, you know, it is something that can happen afterwards by the time the patient has gone to CT, they're in the ICU now. That's where we do see it, if we're going to see it. So to guard against that, I think that, yes, there are some considerations with fluids and things like that. But the reality is, In the emergency department itself, it is a relatively unlikely thing that you're going to be seeing. Circulation. And as you're saying, Kenji, whether they develop the pulmonary edema because of the pulmonary pathophysiology here, or secondary to the cerebral edema, which is another reason why people get pulmonary edema, there's actually a bunch of reasons why they can get it. The upshot of that is that we do need to be judicious with fluids. And so we obviously are going to resuscitate people that are hypotensive but we're not going to overdo it. And in fact, one of the critical take-home messages here is that if someone like the patient in our scenario comes to hypotensive, your first question should be, what else am I missing here? Is there, you know, is there a toxicologic reason, an ingestion? Is there some other trauma? Maybe I'm dealing with a splenic injury. So it's really, really important to get back to basics and search for a cause for shock, not just to paper it over. The reality is it is exceedingly rare for there to be a vascular injury in the cervical segment of the body that's bleeding. If there's going to be an arterial injury, it's going to be a dissection or a flap or some sort of injury like that that's usually contained and not bleeding. But like you said, there may be other toxins that were ingested or You know, if it was somebody that hung themselves on a chair and as they were being lowered, they dropped and hit the ground, there could be a spleen injury or a liver injury concurrently. It's super rare, but those things have to be considered. So I think it's important to ensure that if a patient is looking a little hypotensive, that we really ask the question, what is that from? And 
In the treatment, you're right. If we flood them with fluids as a knee-jerk response, that could cause problems as they hit the ICU later with pulmonary edema. So uh, those are all really good points. Okay, and just one last thing under circulation that I think is important is that we're always questioning whether things that we do are really relevant, right? We don't go crazy with C-spine precautions in patients with gunshot wounds to the neck anymore, right? We, we, we've got to be smart about what we do uh, in terms of these knee-jerk responses. So here, just for the record, I want to say that continuous cardiac monitoring in these patients actually is important because they have been known to have these sort of irregular sympathetic bursts of activity where their vitals can go wonky and uh, they can have dysrhythmias that are quite life-threatening. And so this is not a case to, oh, this was, you know, this is a trauma and, you know, the vitals were normal. I don't have to worry about this. No, this is a case where they really need to be on the monitor. So I wanted to make that extra point. Agreed. Disability. Now, getting down to disability, from the minute they hit the door, I mean, you made the point, this is not a surgical intervention that's going to make their prognosis better. It's going to be the medical management for the most part, right? And so much of that hinges on the head of the bed. And so when we know that there's expanding injury in the brain, it's a big deal. We want to make sure that the head of the bed, all other factors being equal, is elevated at 30 degrees. And so that's the big thing really early on that you're doing about disability. I mean, obviously, if they're herniating, you're going to be taking other steps. But uh, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I think, you know, we really need to be cognizant that these patients could have a, an oxy-induced brain injury and everything that we can do until we get that imaging done so that we can look at the brain to see what it's doing is critical. So all the steps that we can take, including the head of bed at 30, I think is definitely worthwhile. And so much of the, the pathophysiology here, so much of the mechanism of injury here is about those occluded venous channels. And as the back pressure is building, so much of the damage to the brain is from that. And likewise, in the hospital, we can add to that damage if we don't promote that drainage of the jugular venous system. Exactly. These are very soft veins that are in your neck, and the ligatures are going right around them. Whereas the arteries may be able to tolerate them, the veins may be collapsed. So I think that that's a, that's a great point. Exposure. Okay, Kenji. So the last letter in the alphabet that they accuse us of knowing, E, is for exposure. And it's really important to do that complete skeletal survey, etc. in this patient, is it not? Yeah, I think it's really, like you said, it, it is really important at the moment that they've decided that they're going to do this and they let go. You know, there's a lot of things that'll occur, but one of them is going to be a reaction and they're going to jerk and they're going to flail and there may be chairs there. They may be close to a wall or a door frame. And there's definitely the possibility that a skeletal injury or when they're dropped, they can uh, break bones as well. So it really is important that although the main focus of our clinical exam is going to be the neck and the head area, we really do need to make sure that we don't miss a skeletal fracture that has gone along with it. This is the end of the first section, the A, B, D, C, E section. And now we move on to the rapid access section. It's May 1, which means warm weather around the corner are already there if you're lucky, which means more people outside hiking. And that means more of the little crawlies all over people, including ticks, and it makes us now have to be concerned about tick-borne illnesses. So this is the perfect time for us to start reviewing that. Now, we discussed Lyme disease back in 2016 with Justin Hensley. 
and it was discussed even more recently on Right on Prime in June of 2020. Not much has changed on Lyme disease, so we're going to skip that one. We're going to really hit the other tick-borne illnesses that we need to know. And by we, I mean Gita Pensa and Jesse Werner are here to discuss in depth all of the tick-borne stuff that you need to know. Jesse Werner, Gita Pensa. I actually, I really hate ticks. I hate this whole topic. I hate ticks. They give me the EBGBs. I just, I don't like that. I feel like them like other people feel about spiders. You know, you're not alone, but I have a game for us. Let's start off with a game. This is probably going to make things worse for you, but let's, <laughs> I like to call this game Tick or Vampire. Tick or Vampire. Oh my God. Yeah, no, that's not going to help. Not going to help me. Okay. All right. It'll be fun. So I'm going to give you a fact, and then you're going to say if it's a tick, a vampire, or both. Okay. Okay. So first of all, it can live for years without feeding. Tick, vampire, or both? Uh, That seems like a long time for either a tick or a vampire. So I'm going to guess both. Yes. Great. Okay. Well, little known fact about vampires, there is this (laughs) thing called the vampire rule. I had to look this up, but for every year that you've been a vampire, apparently that's one year you can go without feeding. And some ticks have been known to go for several years, like two years without feeding. It's called fasting. And that's how you know I'm not a vampire because I can only go like 15 minutes. Okay. All right. What's the the next question? Okay. So it can survive for long periods of time underwater. Tick, vampire, or both? Um, Well, uh, vampires are technically not alive, so... Uh, and now ticks seem shockingly indestructible, so I'm going to guess both again. Yeah, you're right. It's both. So ticks have been shown to survive underwater for days, and even up to 15 days in one study. Now, as for vampires, I I don't really know. It's kind of a subjective debate. It seems like they can go for long periods of time without breathing. Maybe they don't even need to breathe. It's a little murky. So, Gita, you win. You win the game. Gita wins the game. Okay. All right. Well, it's always a little more fun when I win, but I'm definitely even more scared of these like indestructible ticks. Okay. So obviously there's a lot to know about ticks, but where do they intersect with emergency medicine? Okay. Yeah. So there are lots of different tick types in the United States, and it's important to think about where they live geographically so that we can think about the diseases that they carry and the diseases we should be thinking about. It's important to remember that all of these are becoming more ubiquitous with climate change. So in the past, we only had to worry about these in the warmer months. But now, because we're not getting as many freezing temperatures and we're going for longer periods with temperatures that are above freezing, these ticks are living longer. And so you actually, they can be searching for a host anytime that the winter temperatures are above freezing. Oh, gosh. Actually, that's a good point. Thinking about climate change, that is also altering the geographic territory of all of these ticks too. So the geography of the diseases is is changing. That's something we have to keep in mind. So, okay, Jesse, let's run through some of the diseases that these ticks carry. And then I'd like us to focus a little deeper on just a few of them. So let's start with Ixodes, the black-legged tick species or the deer tick. That's the one that I'm most familiar with. Ixodes scapularis. <laughs> and as you said, that is primarily in the East Coast. I know there is a Pacificus version, but it is, the East Coast version anyway, is a really generous host and it opens itself to all types. It carries a spirochete, a bacterium, a parasite, and a virus. Yes, it sure does, Gita. And it's important to remember whenever you're dealing with tick-borne diseases that there's co-infection is super common and many of these ticks carry multiple diseases 
But you're right. The Ixodes does carry all of those. Now, the spirochete you're talking about there is Lyme disease, and the bacterium is anaplasma. The parasite is Babesia, and the virus is the deer tick virus, which is also called the Powassan virus. All right. We'll talk a little bit about Powassan in a second. How about the Lone Star tick? Yes. So this is Amblyona americanum. <laughs> Amblyoma americanum. And it's important to remember that all stages of this tick are aggressive. So sometimes it's only the nymph or the female that are biting. But with the Lone Star tick, all stages of this tick, male, female, nymph, they all are aggressive. And this guy's actually gotten some publicity recently because it is the tick that causes alpha-gal syndrome. Do you remember that? Yeah. So that's the immune reaction. It's not an infectious disease. It's like an immunologic reaction where people develop a red meat allergy. Heidi James and Vanessa Cardi covered alpha-gal in-depth in ROP in May 2021. Check out that segment for all the details on alpha-gal. Nice shot, alpha-gal. Take that, meat lover. This tick also can transmit some life-threatening diseases, so tularemia and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and also ehrlichiosis, which normally is more like a flu-like illness. Okay. Lone star, tularemia, ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Did I miss something? No. Oh, and alpha-gal. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, so now let's talk about the dog ticks. We've got the American dog tick. Durmacentor variabilis. And the brown dog tick. Ripicephalus. Sanguinius. What do they carry? Yeah, and those are important because they both carry Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is very life-threatening. The American dog tick also carries tularemia. And these are the guys that can go a super long time without feeding, you know, months to years if they don't find a host. Ah, uh, yes, the geriatric vampires. Okay. No, there is no geriatric vampire. We are ageless. <laughs> then there's the groundhog tick, which is another Ixodes species. Ixodes cocaine. Yeah, now that one's not as great a host as the black-legged or, or the deer tick. It only carries Powassan virus. But the reason I wanted to bring up Powassan is because it's neuroinvasive and it can cause a severe meningoencephalitis and permanent neurologic disability and even death. So you don't want it. Gosh, this is horrible. <laughs> All right, so human Powassan virus. So those infections are pretty rare, but I think the incidence is increasing. Like it's seen in several places in the United States. It's been seen in Canada and Russia. But I think most of the cases in the U.S. are in the Northeast and the Great Lakes region, right? Yeah, and you're right. There's only a few. All right, the Gulf Coast tick. Ablioma maculata. Well, this one's really cool, actually. So this one transmits rickettsia parkiri rickettsiosis, which is so fun <laughs> to say. And it's also associated with tick paralysis. Ah, the ascending paralysis. I've been waiting my whole career to be the hero in a case like this, and it hasn't come up yet, or I've missed the tick. But if you are the hero that finds the tick and takes it off, the patient magically recovers. I was just reading about a case that happened not long ago with a five-year-old who had that ascending paralysis, and the mother, after the patient was intubated, found those ticks behind her ear, and so the mother got to be the hero. It's amazing. And the, the patient just gets better right away. They improve before your eyes. Is it only the Gulf Coast tick that does that one? It's been associated with the American dog tick and the Gulf Coast tick, but probably lots of ticks can cause this. There are just so many of these diseases to know, Jesse. I feel like we could do a whole segment on any one of them. Mm -hmm. And also, a lot of these diseases present really similarly. They all present with fever, headache, body aches. Like, How do we, how do we tell them apart? That is the hardest part. And I kind of like to say that ticks are like Tex-Mex. 
So, you know, when you think about Tex-Mex, it's like, what's a burrito? Oh, it's cheese, vegetable, and meat. Well, <laughs> you know, what's a fajita? It's cheese, vegetable, and meat. It, what's a taco? <laughs> and it's the same thing with tick-borne illnesses. You know, it's always a viral, like, fever, headache, body aches. I feel like there are a lot of folks in the Southwest and Tex-Mex lovers who are very unhappy with you right now. <laughs> Dear MRAP. But it is important to have tick-borne illness somewhere on the differential, I think, of any patient presenting with fever without a clear source, especially in the warmer months. I mean, you just said that that's not a hard and fast rule, but is there a way that we can tell these illnesses apart clinically? Testing, I know, in the early phases can be negative and won't come back in time to help us in the ED anyway. And usually we won't know what kind of tick bit the patient, even though we went through all those tick types or even if a tick bit them. So you got to help us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you're right. Having a high level of suspicion and thinking that it could be a tick is the first thing. But let me try and break it down for you. I really liked how you talked about the deer tick. You know, you said it carries a bacteria, a parasite and a virus. And most of the diseases that we're talking about are actually bacterial. So Lyme disease, anaplasma, ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, tularemia. Those are all bacterial. Now, Babesia is the big parasite and Powassan is the big virus. All right. Bacteria, which includes the spirochetes and these rickettsia and everything. Babesia is the parasite. Powassan is the virus. And I remember you said that you're kind of tired of Lyme and we both trained on the East Coast. So we see a lot of Lyme and I understand that. We won't talk about it. But I just want to remind everyone that doxycycline is now approved for use in any age. This was an update from 2015, and you can use it in young kids as long as it's short courses. So that is now first line for people of all ages. Let's just say right now that doxycycline is important for a lot of these diseases. Yeah, when in doubt, go doxy. Is there yeah. anything else you want to say about Lyme, Gita? I'll just say a couple of things. One, prophylaxis is indicated in patients who come in saying that they had a deer tick that was adherent for greater than 36 hours or a notably engorged tick, those patients can be treated with 200 milligrams of doxycycline times one that averts the disease. We're seeing it in a lot more areas than just the East Coast now, all the way from Virginia to Maine, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and even parts of the West Coast with that Pacificus sixodes tick. And the Deep South's not on that list, but I recently just heard of something that folks call Southern Lyme disease. Have you heard of this? No, I have not heard of that, Gita. Apparently, this is associated with Lone Star tick bites. And so Lone Star ticks, as we said, are found pretty much central Texas, Oklahoma eastward, across the southern states, and on the Atlantic coast as far north as Maine. So there's some overlap with Lyme regions. But patients get a bullseye rash that's similar to what happens with Lyme after a black-legged tick bite, but it's not due to Borrelia burgdorferi. It's not that spirochete illness. And patients don't go on to get other significant symptoms. They don't actually know what causes that reaction yet. The official name for this is STARI, S-T-A-R-I, which is Southern Tick Associated Rash Illness. Because it looks like Lyme, people usually get treated with antibiotics regardless of the fact that we don't know actually what causes STARI, but the patients do get better quickly on antibiotics. Actually, now when you say it uh, with that name, I do remember that. So that's a great reminder. And an important thing to remember with all of these illnesses, Gita, kind of like we mentioned before, co-infection is super common. So people with Lyme, they don't usually have GI symptoms, but if you see someone come in and you're thinking Lyme, but they also have severe symptoms like really high fever, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, maybe they do have GI symptoms, 
that's when you should be thinking that perhaps there's a co-infection with another infectious agent, something like Babesia or Anaplasma. That's the Tex-Mex combo platter. That's a taco (laughs) Anaplasma. All right. So what I'd like to do now is focus on just a couple of these diseases. There's like, there's so many of them, but let's just focus in on a couple. And then think about a general approach to treatment when you're thinking about a tick-borne illness on your differential. Is that that okay? Sounds good. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. The one I think that scares a lot of us is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, as it should. It's a terrifying disease and it's hard to diagnose. So the big vectors here, again, are the dog ticks. This can be a tough diagnosis to make, but early diagnosis is critical. What can you tell us about Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? Yeah, let me throw down some Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever knowledge bombs here. So (laughs) it it can be transmitted very soon after the tick attaches. So unlike Lyme, where you're looking for that attachment of, you know, greater than 36 hours, this can be transmitted in as soon as two hours. So before the tick is fully engorged. And as you said, early diagnosis is key. This is not something where you want to wait around for any sort of confirmatory testing. You want to treat this as soon as possible. Now, in days one and two of the illness, this is the early period, people come in with a classic triad that is fever, headache, and rash. And some clues that might key you in, again, labs are not going to help you too much, but some clues are classically hyponatremia, and they all will have a mild transaminitis and possibly thrombocytopenia. There's, again, not a diagnostic test for the acute phase, so you really have to suspect it. The other thing that is classic about this disease is so people, they come in with fever and headache, and then they develop the rash. So the rash comes on two to five days after the onset of fever. And this is a maculopapular rash. It begins on the wrists, the palms, the soles, the ankles, and then it spreads centrally. Now, you really don't want to wait for the rash because it can progress from maculopapular to petechial, and that is a sign of severe disease. And once you've got severe disease, you can have terrible multi-system organ failure, cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, vasculitis, necrosis, people need amputations, and the median time to death is eight days if this disease goes untreated, eight days. Well, thankfully, it is treated with doxycycline. Actually, there are other lesser-known rickettsial-spotted fevers, and they're all susceptible to doxycycline. Doxycycline for kids, doxycycline for adults, and even if you're suspecting Rocky Mountain-spotted fever in a pregnant woman, even doxycycline for pregnant women in this case, that's the most recent advice from the CDC. So if you have any suspicion that it's a tick-borne illness and you're going to empirically prescribe doxy, then at least you have this one covered. But the trick, again, is to have it on your differential. So Jesse, let's just talk briefly about a couple other tick-borne illnesses that will be successfully treated with doxycycline, a couple of other things that you're also going to cover. So tell me about anaplasma. Anaplasma. Us older docs used to think of this as another ehrlichia. It was called human granulocytic ehrlichiosis when I trained, but now it's got its own its own name as anaplasma. Yeah. So anaplasmosis infects neutrophils. And it does present similarly to ehrlichiosis. And you want to think about this one in patients who come in with unexplained, nonspecific symptoms like, you know, the headache, the myalgias, fever, GI symptoms are more common. And usually these patients will have abnormal labs. So thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, and a mild transaminitis. So again, it's like 
not just the general symptoms, but the general symptoms plus the abnormal lab should get you thinking about anaplasma. And this is diagnosed mostly with PCR, at least early on. Again, this is treated with doxy. And again, when you're in doubt and you're dealing with ticks, it's usually doxy. Let's talk about a couple of exceptions to the doxycycline rule. Yeah. Babesia. Want to talk about babesia? Yeah, let's start with babesia. Okay, so this is really similar to malaria because babesia also is a parasite that infects red blood cells. This will present, go figure, with a fever and body aches, but patients will sometimes have signs of hemolysis. The symptoms of this can range from like really nothing, totally asymptomatic, to very severe. I will say about 90% of patients will get a fever with drenching sweats, just like malaria. They may have emesis, weight loss, myalgias. And on labs, again, you're going to see those signs of hemolysis. So that's your increased unconjugated bilirubin and increased LDH. One good thing about Babesia is that you might actually get real-time help in diagnosing it in the ED using the thick and thin blood smear to see the parasites. I think it's called the Maltese cross is the pathognomonic sign. You're amazing. Yes, that is it, the Maltese cross. And that is actually the asexual reproduction of the organism in the red cell. They make these sort of tetrads. The organism makes these tetrads that make a shape like a Maltese cross. And the organism is called, those are the mirozoites. So as we said, this is an exception to the doxycycline rule. How do we treat it? Okay, so for this, you're going to use azithromycin or atovaquone for mild disease. If people have more severe disease, you're going to bump up to a clindamycin and quinine. Okay. What's another exception to the doxycycline for everyone rule? Tularemia. Yes. So another good one to keep in mind is tularemia, which is not super common, but very interesting. It is one of the most virulent bacteria known, and it's actually a Category A bio-warfare agent, Gita. So it's highly infective, and it's easy to aerosolize. But you can also just get it from like a cat or a dead rabbit. <laughs> That's true. This is actually called rabbit fever, and people usually do get it by picking up dead rabbits. And it's present in all states except Hawaii, I believe. I mean, it might be now, but it's not documented. And, you know, it can't be transmitted person to person, so you don't need to worry about that. But you can get it, like you said, from handling a dead cat or dead animals. Where does the, where does the tick come into this? Yeah, so what happens is the ticks infest the rabbits or the tick bites the cat. So basically the bacteria can get into the skin through small cuts or, or a bite, and then you get an ulcer that forms at the wound site. So there's the glandular tularemia, there's oculoglandular, there's oropharyngeal, there's pneumonic. And that's the pneumonic one is where the farmers work with contaminated hay, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And that is the most serious form. And if there was like a, you know, a mass casualty incident or like biowarfare, that's the one you think about. And, and importantly, Gita, do you know how to treat this? I do not. <laughs> streptomycin. Like I could never, I don't think I've ever reached for streptomycin, but this is when you're going to grab it. So streptomycin. You can also use uh, tetracyclines for less severely ill people. Summary. All right. So this was a lot of information. I still do not like ticks. Well, we don't like you either. I mean, we're not biting you because of your personality. We're biting you because of the blood. We're hungry. We gotta eat. But it, the big takeaways here are that Babesia and Tularemia are treated differently from the other ones, not with doxycycline. Kids can get doxycycline. Uh, if you're worried about Rocky Mountain spotted fever, 
everyone, including pregnant women, should get doxycycline and they should get it early. As an aside, in Lyme disease, pregnant women would probably be treated with an alternative agent like amoxicillin, but that's not going to help in Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And Rocky Mountain spotted fever is a killer. And co-infection with more than one agent at once. This is the combo Tex-Mex platter. <laughs> this is something that's common and we should have a high suspicion for it. Yeah, those are the big things. Tu laru larimia, tu laru larai. You can't get this from vampire, only from tick bite. Uh, give me a break, will ya? Tu laru larimia. You know, you're giving us a bad name. Okay, shush, be quiet. You're contributing to spreading misinformation. Ticks, they spread diseases. No, not on purpose. But vampires only bite. If you get bit by a tick, you don't turn into a tick. We don't make people sick, we bite. You kill people. Only some. Some we turn into other vampires. Doesn't matter, ticks don't kill people. You, you kill people with the spotting mountain rotting That's fever. That's not us, dude. When we kill, we do it immediately. You make it take a very long time, no. eight days. We're not making it do anything. Listen. I bite, you bite, Ugh. we kill, you kill, I kill, but you make it take super you long time. You gotta stop, you gotta stop, really. I'm getting really annoyed at these false equivalencies here. You know, you're spreading false information, all right, you're making us look bad. You know, I don't see you saying anything about the bacteria that actually causes the disease. Hello? Oh, did someone ask you a tough question and you fly away? Typical. Typical! She's an EMS physician at UC San Diego, Dr. Jenny Farah. So you might remember that about a month ago, we talked with Jenny Farah, EMS director, about the use of ketamine in the pre-hospital setting. Very interesting. Go listen to it. Now we have to talk about excited delirium or agitated delirium. And why do we have to talk about this? Well, because it's a real syndrome, even though the WHO and the American Psychiatric Society haven't sort of officially named this thing. ASEP and other review articles say this is a real thing. We don't know exactly what it is, and it's probably got multiple etiologies, but basically the idea is you've got psychomotor agitation, delirium, and a hypersympathetic syndrome, and this puts patients at very high risk for cardiac arrest. And if you haven't seen this, well, good luck to you, because it is terrifying. I've seen this multiple times. That exact same scenario, where somebody is super agitated, like they're on some big-time hypersympathetic drug, and they're sweating, 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 and they're super agitated and they're trying to kill everybody around them. And then I've seen them after they've been restrained and move from one gurney to another, go into cardiac arrest. And why this is so controversial, obviously, is that these deaths can occur in the pre-hospital setting. They can occur when the police are there. And then some people are going to say, well, the cops caused that death. And other people are going to say, no, no, this is a syndrome. And the cops just happened to be there. And while they were restraining them, they died. And probably there's some mix of both of those things. Sometimes it's because things were done which made it, the situation worse when it didn't need to be worse. And sometimes there's probably nothing that could be done. So this is where medicine and sort of politics and weirdness occurs. So let's just try and focus on the medicine of that as much as possible. But before we get there, Jenny has to explain to us in the US, how does this work? When you see somebody super agitated and they're delirious and they've got a weapon or they're uh, just going crazy in the street and you've got to stop them, how does that go down in the pre-hospital setting? A thing that people may not realize is that for a lot of EMS providers, when they're called to the scene of a person who has been labeled as agitated or potentially hostile, EMS is asked to stand back or stand down until law enforcement secures the scene. 
So likely the person will need to be restrained or controlled by law enforcement first. So what's the best practice for getting that person under control? You know, this is where you start to get into questions of who's the best person to be providing the sedation if and when it's needed. And so I think that that's a really important thing to consider. Because when we look at excited delirium syndrome, we know that earlier sedation is key. That's what prevents the person from succumbing to this catecholamine storm and becoming more and more unstable. So we know early sedation is key. So who should be doing the sedation? Law enforcement? EMS? No, no, no. Wait till they get to the emergency department where they'll be put in front of a physician. Maybe the latter is too late. In terms of the law enforcement option, I mean, some systems do have sworn medics, so medics that serve as law enforcement officers, but that's not in every system. And then, you know, how much oversight are you going to get from your medical director to, to really be overseeing this and doing the proper education? That's a big wild card, too. But the point being that these questions are not easy to answer. And sometimes when I feel like these stories are put out in the news, they make it seem like the answer is very simple. And I just don't agree with that. You know, but there are some people who think that it's kind of like a hoax, like it was a conspiracy made up by people who are trying to defend law enforcement agencies to explain their sudden deaths in custody. But it it definitely is something that's real. And it's been discussed in the literature for a couple of centuries now. So if you'll go on a journey with me, Mel. I'd love to. To 1849. Yes, I was just a young boy. There's a doctor by the name of Luther Bell. Psychiatrists going back again to the 1800s and even before that. We're starting to notice this characteristic syndrome characterized by delusions, hallucinations, hyperactivity. They were usually very hyperthermic as well with fevers. And wouldn't you know when people succumbed to this storm of symptoms, the mortality was very high. So Luther Bell, a psychiatrist at an asylum for the insane, back when we called them asylums for the insane, insane, by the way, right? That already tells you right there. Classified this as Bell mania. And he found this syndrome and he saw the mortality was very high. It was 75%. And you start to see this as you go through the literature and then into the 1900s. And then you see, wouldn't you guess it, in the 1980s, we start to see a lot of case reports coming out of Miami. Do you want to guess why, Mel, we started to see a lot of case reports? Well, that was the peak of the cocaine epidemic in uh, the U.S. But I can't say for sure because, you know, that's an association doesn't necessarily mean causation. But I will say this. Say hello to my little friend. Do you want to play with Okay. Right? So it's not shocking that a lot of the syndrome is secondary to drugs that create a sympathomimetic toxidrome. So you see things in cocaine, you see in amphetamine use. And so wouldn't you know it, a lot of medical examiners in Dade County, Florida, not shockingly, were seeing this in the 1980s. And the medical examiners, the National Association of Medical Examiners, has put out position papers on this. Sometimes it's called cocaine-induced delirium or other types of sympathomimetic toxidrome deliriums, but they're, they're pretty much discussing the same type of symptoms which is usually that you have um, a patient that is their patient as a medical examiner, right? So they're dead. And they are hearing about a history of some type of amphetamine or cocaine use. And they're not finding any anatomical causes of death on their medical autopsy. And what they were finding or what they were suggesting is that it was really due to excessive dopamine that was causing this loss of autonomic function that pretty much just progresses into cardiorespiratory collapse. And so it's been well described in the literature. We start, we've been seeing it for a couple of centuries now, we can even say. And then wouldn't you know it, ASEP publishes their own white paper on excited delirium syndrome in 2010. I mean, they think they do a really good job in this white paper where they just address the controversy head on. They address that they know that some people are hesitant to even use this as a medical term because they feel it could be used quite broadly, maybe inappropriately so. But they do discuss the exact same syndrome that we've been discussing, which is that you have these patients who are hyper-aggressive, acting bizarre, they seem to be impervious to pain, they're combative, they're hypothermic, they're tachycardic, and there's usually uh, reports of stimulant abuse, whether that be through cocaine, amphetamines, PCP, or other type of illicit drugs. 
They also find that this tends to occur in males in their 30s. And when you look at sort of the pre-hospital records, you notice that a lot of these are calls for disturbance. So like your friend you saw at that intersection. And for those of you that didn't listen to the uh, prior ketamine piece, I was just saying, you know, right before we were recording this section, I was driving over to the studio and there was a naked, floridly psychotic woman running through the streets here of Los Angeles, putting herself and all of the car drivers at very, very extensive risk. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder how this is going to go down in terms of all of the things we're talking about here. Who's going to get there first? How are they going to sedate this person? How are they going to get them to the hospital? This could go badly. Just brought up all of the things that we're talking about. That tends to be how they are identified. And these are folks that are very difficult to control because they seem to exhibit superhuman strength. And then a lot of these cases, they can sort of exhibit a bit of a quote unquote giving up period where they tend to kind of calm down and relax. And then they die of sudden death. So I've seen this as well. The patient gets to the emergency department, because that's where I worked, in the emergency department, and they've been super agitated, super agitated, they've been fighting with everybody, you know they're going to have rhabdo there, you know they're hypothermic, and you start sedating them, sedating them, sedating them, and then they have a cardiac arrest. And then you're like, did I just do that? Or was that the end point of this disease? This dopamine thing, this sympathetic storm that results in an arrest after they're just completely washed out. It looks like, like every neurotransmitter is done, and then they arrest I think it's really important at a moment like this to pause and just think about for our pre-hospital folks, whether they be law enforcement or EMS, you know, you've got someone in the field who is acting bizarre, hyperactive, sweating, running away from you, trying to figure out what's going on is extremely challenging because a differential diagnosis for somebody like that could be all sorts of things. It could be an electrolyte problem. It could be a thyroid disorder. It could be an acute infection. You know, is it from some type of neurologic injury, whether it be seizure or stroke, or could it be serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome? I mean, you don't know this, though, in the moment. You just have an individual who could potentially have this life-threatening entity known as excited delirium, but with the backdrop of a whole other myriad of problems that could also be going on with them, but you don't know. You just have someone who is currently a risk to hurting themselves or risk to hurting other people, and what to do as your next best course of action can be really challenging to figure out. So I think we need to do better education on this to the pre-hospital care people, to the police, to say, look, here's the syndrome. It's terrifying. This person that uh, is in front of you could die. You have to sedate them and you have to restrain them, but in a manner that doesn't affect their airway or as little as possible and get them to the emergency department because at any moment they could undergo cardiac arrest and you do not want that to happen. Right. And we know that earlier sedation is key to prevent that cascade of the acidosis buildup and the cardiovascular collapse. So we know sedation is key and earlier on. So I think that's important to consider when you're weighing the pros and cons of earlier sedation and the risk of intubation. Because again, the intubation is what always comes up. As I could tell you as an EMS medical director, when we sit in meetings and talk about things like ketamine, everyone's like, well, what about all the intubation? You know, all these patients are showing up to the ER and they're having to get intubated. Well, consider the trade-off. Earlier sedation, which could save this person's life, versus the rarer chance that they might be so dissociated from their ketamine that someone might think that they need to be intubated. You know, it's, it's a trade-off. You have to trade off the risks of one or the other. And I think it's important to consider that when you're looking at any form of pre-hospital sedation, considering, you know, the, the risks of getting earlier control of that individual with sedation versus whatever risk can come out of whatever sedation agent you use. Now, this can quickly devolve into politics. For example, in Colorado, there was a city council that had the power to ban the use of ketamine in the pre-hospital care setting. Is that really what you want your city council to do? This wasn't a council of doctors. This was a council of, you know, whoever is on the council. So it gets pretty ugly when there's 
bad things that happen in the pre-hospital setting and there's a knee-jerk reaction, well, we must stop that thing. But what about position statements, Jenny? What's ASAP's sort of uh, thoughts on this? The American Society of Anesthesiologists in July of 2020 came out with their position statement on the use of ketamine. And that then was conjoined with ASAP. So ASAP and the ASA together in August of 2020 kind of came out with their joint statement, which essentially reiterated what the anesthesiologist had already said. And in that position statement, I'm paraphrasing here, but in the position statement, they firmly oppose the use of ketamine or any other sedative or hypnotic agent to chemically incapacitate someone solely for a law enforcement purpose and not for a legitimate medical reason. So... I mean, kind of some strong language, but not really. I mean, they're basically saying we're not banning the use of ketamine or discouraging its use, but just make sure you're using it for a medically appropriate reason, not just because law enforcement is asking you to. And the American College of Medical Toxicology in September of 2020 also released a statement that it's somewhat along the same lines in that they did not dissuade the use of ketamine or other sedative medications, but they did say that they should be administered by healthcare professionals for medically indicated purposes not solely for the purpose of behavior control on behalf of law enforcement. So again, paraphrase there, but essentially the same point as what was being made by ASEP and the ASA. And that, again, not discouraging use, but just make sure you're using it for the right reasons. I also was very drawn to the position paper that came out in October of 2020 from NAMSP, an organization I belong to. That's the National Association of EMS Physicians. They put out a paper called Clinical Care and Restraint of Agitated or Combative Patients by Emergency Medical Services Practitioners. And this document was endorsed by folks at the NREMT, so National Registry of EMTs, as well as the National EMS Management Association, the American Paramedic Association. So a lot of EMS folks also came on board with this document as well. And this one I actually thought did a good job of sort of getting more into the details, like the details between the interplay of law enforcement and EMS and sort of the priorities of their different roles. And so if you're able to take a look at it, I think it's one of the more fruitful papers that have come out of all of this. But, you know, it's challenging because I feel like a lot of these groups just feel compelled to say something. They want to say something as the experts on this, especially given all the political optics surrounding these issues. But at the same time, you know, they can't say anything too specific because that kind of stuff can get you in trouble in court. You know, when they're able to pull out a position statement from an organization you belong to or associated with, and it says in there, you should never do this. I mean, that can have some real consequences for folks later on in places that aren't even in your system or in your state. So this is a little away from the medicine, but you can just imagine for a second how difficult these position statements are, because if they're too lax, then people could be given medications for all kinds of reasons, really they're not intended for. And on the other hand, if you make it too tight, then somebody who really does need to be sedated, that's floridly psychotic, is danger to self and others, really needs the drugs, everybody's going to be afraid to do it. So this balancing act is really quite difficult. And of course, it is very lame to say that what we need here is a lot more research. What is the best agent under what circumstances and when? And we don't know. And so although people scream at each other across the political aisles about uh, what they think is the right solution, we don't really know the right solution. When we think about the medicine of this, what is the right pre-hospital agent? When should it be used? How much physical restraint versus chemical restraint and when? We don't even know that in the emergency department, let alone in the pre-hospital care setting. So this piece is meant to basically start that discussion, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion about this topic, because it's very difficult. And we are practicing, again, in a space which is really literature-penic, and we need some more literatures to know what to do. We've talked a lot about ketamine these last two episodes, but maybe that's the wrong agent. Maybe we should be using something else. But what is it? 
I know what Mike Manchin's going to say. Droperidol. So what do we do for these people in the immune spam? Well, we don't really know. So we go back to the usual things. First of all, get the patient on the monitor really fast, get some lines in, assume they have rhabdo, start looking for it, start treating it. Sedate them. We don't know what with. Some people say ketamine, some people say benzos, some people are going to say droperidol. Look for a reversible cause. Think about the sneaky ones, you know, the thyroid. Think about the meningitis encephalitis. Obviously, you're checking their glucose. Understand that this is a critically ill patient. Look for hypothermia. Treat the hypothermia. There are some people that are even saying, get a VBG, and if they're super acidotic, give them bicarb. That's a whole nother discussion that we have absolutely no data on, but people will argue both ways. If this person is severely acidotic, then maybe we should treat that because we know that some of these people are going to rest. I'm not even going to go there. So thanks, Jenny, uh, for bringing this up. And now uh, let the comments pour in because I'm sure we've pissed off lots of people for even discussing this. Dear MRAP. I'm not responding to any of the comments. I'm going to let you respond to all of them because I just... Is that a beer? Oh, and that's the sound of me pouring myself a long one because I know there's going to be lots and lots of comments. And just remember, let's keep them nice. Let's not make them personal. Let's stick to the medicine or I'm not going to publish them. Now, let's go. Excited delirium. Pre-hospital care. How do we think about this? Dear... From the syphilis capital of the world, ladies and gentlemen, it is Cardiology Corner! With your host, Dr. Amol Matu. It has been a while, Amol, since you and I sat down and did a recording, and I'm pretty sure you're trying to get back at me because you sent me the 2021 AHA, ACC, ASE, CHEST, SAEM, SECT, SCMR <laughs> guideline for the evaluation and diagnosis of chest pain published in Jack, and it comes in at a hefty 99 pages. And then I got a voicemail from you, which I was excited to listen to because I don't get a lot of voicemails from Amel. And when I do, they're important. But the voicemail was basically a 10-minute long George Carlin-esque tirade about the ridiculousness of this document, which leads me to my one question, Amel. What's your beef with these guys? <laughs> well, first of all, in defense, 38 of those pages were actually just references and disclosure tables. So it was only 61 <laughs> pages. So, But you're right. This wasn't intended to be retaliation, but it actually got a lot of attention on social media. I'm, I'm sure you saw a lot of the tweets that were going back and forth and a lot of discussion immediately upon its uh, online publication. It's not out in print yet. And it's Probably a pretty important paper to know about because it's endorsed by so many organizations and SAM is up there also. And you're right, it is very long, perhaps a bit too long. So probably the only people that are reading it are nerds like me or maybe you also. But there's some stuff that I'm not happy about in it, but there's a lot of good stuff also and we can kind of go through that. Well, let's start with the things that you didn't love so much. And I know that you started off with talking about the different organizations that were in there, but there were a couple that were missing. And I think that was one of the things that you were a little bit peeved about. Whenever you talk about chest pain, you have to include emergency medicine intimately in that evaluation. And this document had a lot of inpatient stuff, but a lot of it was based on our initial chest pain evaluation. And I was a bit disappointed to see that, number one, there's only three emergency physicians two of whom were apparently representing ACC and AHA, and there was only one emergency physician listed who was representing an EM organization, and it was SAM, which is fine, but the largest organization is ASEP, and neither ASEP nor AAM were incorporated. One of the nice things I have to say about the ASEP guidelines, 
is that they always offer them up to the membership to take a look at and vet. And that was definitely not done here. And I think because it's such a long document and there is relatively a, a small amount of emergency medicine involvement, there's some discrepancies and errors in this document that were not picked up on, which directly influenced emergency medicine that I, I think with some better editing and maybe some more emergency medicine involvement, these really should have been picked up. And you pointed out some editing issues here that maybe were gross errors in, in editing, but maybe weren't. Let's talk about a couple of those that you thought were particularly important. Sure. I'll just go through a list of some of the things that came up. Number one, they stated in one place that chest pain that's more likely cardiac is relieved by nitroglycerin. We know that that's not true. And in fact, later in the document, they ended up disputing that. But that's not something that you can have in there. That's a rookie mistake to think nitroglycerin rules in cardiac pain. In this document, I should also say they tried to cover a lot of stuff and they talked about PE and dissection and valvular heart disease and a number of other things also. And in one area where they talked about PE, they said 90% of PE patients have chest pain and shortness of breath. That's definitely not true. Maybe it was supposed to be chest pain or shortness of breath, but chest pain and shortness of breath, no way. Another area that kind of had me bothered a little bit more is that they, they state in one place, and I'll, I'll give you the page number, it's 18, so everybody can go there and get angry about it. They state that up to 6% of patients with evolving ACS are discharged from the emergency department with the normal EKG. And I looked at that and I thought, what the heck are they talking about? We're discharging 6% of cases of ACS? I have no idea where they came up with. I looked at the references, and the references were all from 1987 to 2002. And other speakers on MRAP over the years have really debunked that concept that you know, it used to be 2%, and here they're saying 6%. That's just ridiculous. That's something that I think the emergency physicians involved in this paper should have picked up on and immediately gotten rid of. We're not discharging 6%. That would come out, based on their numbers, that would come out to saying that over 18,000 patients per year are being discharged from the emergency department with acute coronary syndrome. That bothered me. That bought me uh, at least one glass of Malbec to get through that. <laughs> Another discrepancy, they, they show a, a flow diagram that talks about ST depression and T-way inversions. In one place, they say ST depressions should make you concerned. In another place, they say ST depressions and T-way inversions. Really, there's an inconsistency there. It, I, I think it really should be both. Another area in a table where they're talking about clinical decision pathways they said that a heart score is low risk when it's less than three, and that's incorrect. It's less than or equal to three. That's a, a big mistake there. In other areas of the paper, they corrected it by saying it's less than or equal to three, but in that table, they listed it as less than three, which would suggest that three is not low risk. It is low risk if the heart score is three. And so th those are the, the errors and discrepancies that were in there that I, I think when you're going to put out a, a nationally vetted document representing all these different organizations, there shouldn't be things like that that are in there. Some of these probably could have been editing issues or proofreading issues. The issue about the 6% discharge, that seems like a, a gross error, not, yeah. not necessarily a proofreading error that, again, like you said, should have been picked up as this document was being written. But let's move past some of those obvious errors to things that you took a little bit of issue with, starting with their desire, the author's desire to replace this term of atypical chest pain in our lexicon. In the article, they made a strong point about getting rid of the term atypical chest pain. 
which has been a longstanding term that people use for all different types of reasons. And I agree. I think atypical chest pain has a very vague and ambiguous meaning. So I'm all in favor of getting rid of the term atypical chest pain. I don't know what that means. But what they favor using instead is the term non-cardiac chest pain. And I have a problem with that because how do you know when you're seeing a patient and you think they're dischargeable, that's low risk. That's not non-cardiac or no risk. And I just don't think that we should be telling patients or documenting non-cardiac chest pain. Because if, if you look at the med-mal cases, the, the majority of med-mal cases I see for missed MI have non-cardiac chest pain as the final diagnosis. And the last thing you want to do is tell a patient, your pain is definitely non-cardiac. I've seen two cases, two lawsuits where patients were discharged home with the diagnosis of non-cardiac chest pain and didn't come back specifically because they were told it was not cardiac. One was an elderly guy who went home, got chest pain again. He didn't come back. The next day, chest pain is getting worse. He still doesn't come back. The next day, third day, chest pain is getting even worse. Finally, his wife convinces him to come back and he codes on the way back to the hospital. He dies. And at deposition, they asked the wife, why didn't you bring your husband back? And she specifically said, because the doctor said it's not your heart. I don't think you should be telling patients that it's non-cardiac or documenting non-cardiac. They endorse the concept of discharging patients who you feel are low risk with no further workup. So why don't we just call it low risk rather than saying non-cardiac? So I'm sure that I'm going to get some arguments about that, but I just think it's safer to not use the term non-cardiac and just say low risk or very low risk if you want. A couple other things on page 10 of this document, they show a continuum. It's a nice diagram or, or figure which shows a continuum of probabilities for ischemia based on the descriptors patients use. But we've actually seen evidence in the past, even published in JAMA, saying that there's no good evidence for gauging someone's risk based on the words that patients use. So the, the evidence has shown that if patients use the term squeezing or pressure or tightness, it doesn't significantly increase the risk. And so we shouldn't really pay a lot of attention to the type of words patients use. One thing that I did like is they, they suggest using the term chest discomfort rather than chest pain. But I don't think that you can make a lot of conclusions about the words that people use. I don't know about your population, but in my population, people love to use the term sharp. And in this document, they say if somebody uses the word sharp, that portends low risk. But with our patients, they use the term sharp when they're trying to say it's really severe. And so that's not necessarily a low risk word that you can bank on. So I think I'd be very careful about making any decisions based on the words, either increasing or lowering the risk based on the words that patients use. I've definitely had a similar experience to you. I very rarely had patients come in and describe it as pressure or squeezing as their chest pain. In fact, many of the patients who describe pressure or squeezing end up not having a cardiac cause right. for their chest pain. They don't have ACS. So I don't really put a lot of weight on those things either. And I think most in emergency medicine have been taught not to put a lot of weight on that. But it's hard when you see a document like this from all of these organizations saying, no, 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 you should put a little bit of weight on those things. And I think it really runs contrary to our experiences in the emergency department. And I have heard it from cardiologists before when they've come to see a patient that I think is high risk or they've got some ischemic changes on their ECG and they come to see them and says, well, they're describing their pain as sharp. So I'm not really thinking that this is ACS. And I'm like, I don't know if we can put that much weight on that one word. We have to be really careful about that. I agree. I agree totally. And then the, the, the last thing that I had a, a real issue with was 
their suggestion that there's a warranty period of prior cardiac testing. First of all, I hate the word warranty. I think that's too much of a colloquialism to put in a national document that is endorsed by all these different organizations. I mean, who's the crazy person who put warranty? You can't put warranties on people's hearts or on people's lives. I mean, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Mr. Jones had a warranty, and so he should still be alive. It included parts and labor. I mean, come on. Why would you say in a formal document that there's a warranty? And then on top of that, just the concept that if somebody gets this test, they are guaranteed. Parts and labor include, they're guaranteed to survive. You know, they say if somebody has a normal angio that gives you a two-year warranty, okay, Concept-wise, I'm okay with that. If somebody has a clean coronary CTA that gives you two-year warranty, concept-wise, I don't like the term, but concept-wise, I'm okay with that also. But the part about this warranty that got me was they say that if somebody has a normal stress test, you get a one-year warranty. And I totally disagree with that. We all have seen cases and we've seen publications and talked about this on MRAP and at national conferences that a recent negative stress test, they're going out to one year, but a negative stress test within the past one year means that you can discharge the patient. And on page 33, by the way, that's exactly what they say. They say that if a patient with intermediate level chest pain has had a prior negative stress test in the past one year, bam, discharge. They don't even say anything about checking biomarkers or even an EKG. Hopefully that's been done, but I think that is just wrong. And we've got prior literature documenting that that's not right. And, and there's just so much anecdotal experience. And then a discrepancy to what they themselves are saying. On page 36, they even say that 6 to 15% of troponin-positive ACS occurs in the absence of obstructive coronary disease. And those are the patients that have negative stress tests. So they're even in their own documents saying that 6 to 15% of Patients with troponin-positive ACS are probably going to have a negative stress test, and yet they're saying if they've had a negative stress test in the past year, you can discharge them. I, I think that's just not right. And again, I'm probably going to get in heat for saying this, but I think that's a dangerous thing to put in a national document like this. It's just not supported by our experience and by other publications that we've discussed in prior years. I think, Alma, we've been talking about that for over a decade on MRAP that a prior stress test does not rule out ACS as a possibility on the next presentation. And like you said, we've all got anecdotes. We've seen very public cases of people who have had negative stress tests, they have negative workups, and then have a massive heart attack. We just can't put a lot of weight on those stress tests, knowing all of the weaknesses of that test. Now, it may be with a normal stress test and a normal EKG and a normal evaluation in the emergency department, that patient is low risk enough to go home and follow up, but that's not what was written here. That's not what they wrote. And that's the problem. Exactly agree with what you just said. You can say that it lowers the risk, maybe even lowers the risk significantly, but to just flat out say discharge if they've had a negative stress in the past one year is just, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Amal, let's switch gears a little bit because there were some things in this document that you liked, that you thought was pretty good and was good for them to be putting out. Let's touch on some of those pieces. Let's end a little bit positive. And then we'll bring it back around because I do think the negative things, it's not that they're negative, it's that they're important for us to know to provide proper care and not get lulled into that false sense of security. But let's talk about some of the good things in the document too. All right. So I'm going to give me a second yeah, to yeah. get a shot of droperidol. Uh, okay. 
I'm feeling a little bit better now. Okay. Thanks for putting things back in perspective. So there were actually quite a few things that I thought were really good and really important about this document. First of all, I'm kind of old school, and I believe in this concept of this old-fashioned approach of doing a good history on these patients. And they had a very nice discussion endorsing the importance of doing a good history to help sort through the different causes of chest pain. You know, you've got so many different things that might be causing chest pain. ACS, one of them, dissection, PE, valvular heart disease. They talk about sickle cell disease-related chest pain and, and multiple others. So good history is really important. They talk about the fact that patients use a lot of different terms and they recommend using chest discomfort. I'm sure everyone out there has had the patient where you say, Mr. Jones, you know, tell me about your chest pain. And he says, it's not a pain. It's a discomfort. They also have a very nice format or list of things that you should be asking about. You should ask about the patient's pain, nature, onset, duration, location, radiation, severity, precipitating alleviating factors, associated symptoms. And to me, this was great to see because it endorses a mnemonic that I've been teaching for 27 years. It's my old car mnemonic. Any of our grads out there ought to know the old car mnemonic. O-L-D-C-A-A-A-R. Onset, location, duration, character, alleviating and aggravating factors, associated symptoms, activity. What were you doing when the pain began? Were you shoveling snow, mowing the lawn, whatever? And then radiation. And if you want to add an S to it, old cars, add an S for severity. I honestly, I don't ask about severity too often because even in the paper, they say that the intensity or severity of the pain does not correlate with seriousness of disease. And we've all had those patients that are eating a turkey sandwich, flipping channels, texting, and they're complaining of 15 out of 10 chest pain. And, and so the intensity is kind of plus minus. Rolls right off the tongue. Onset location, duration, character, alleviating, aggravating, associated symptoms, activity, radiation, and severity. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like the fact that they had a, a brief discussion about signs and symptoms of women. And we've discussed this many times in EMRAP in recent years. There's nothing new if you're a subscriber. But again, they say that women are less likely to get timely and appropriate care. They more frequently have alternative symptoms besides chest pain than men. Now, chest pain is still the most common symptom that they get, but compared to men, they will more frequently complain of shortness of breath instead of chest pain, unexplained nausea and vomiting instead of chest pain, or alternative locations of their pain, isolated arm pain, isolated neck pain, and so on. And they have a higher morbidity and mortality because of that. Very similar things they stated for the elderly. But remember to include mental status change, abdominal pain, and also they talk about unexplained falls as a possible anginal equivalent. And then something that has um, not really been discussed enough in many other articles, they talk about racial and ethnic disparities, which I think as a society we're, we're becoming more attuned to. They talk about the fact that Blacks, Hispanics, South Asians and also Medicaid and uninsured patients get less aggressive workups and treatment. And as a result, they have a higher morbidity and mortality, and they make a recommendation for cultural competency training, and also making sure to use formal translation services rather than just trying to piecemeal broken English together in patients that are from other countries. They endorse, and this is, this is really important. Again, it's nothing new compared to what ASEP did a few years ago that we've talked about before. But they also endorse the concept that low-risk ACS patients, 
meaning less than 1% 30-day risk of MACE, these patients do not need an urgent workup. In fact, they go so far as to say that there's no evidence to support the benefit of stress testing or cardiac imaging within 30 days of the ED visit if somebody meets low-risk criteria. Now, how do you meet low-risk criteria? Again, they endorse using clinical decision pathways such as the heart score, EDAX, ADAPT, or also some of the highly sensitive troponin pathways that we recently talked about. And for intermediate risk patients, those are the patients that ought to be getting stress testing or imaging, like coronary CTA. How do you decide between the two? Well, remember that coronary CTA is more likely to overestimate the size of lesions, so you should ideally only be using coronary CTA in patients that have a very low likelihood for coronary disease. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of false positives. So in younger patients, say under 65, or patients with suspected less amount of obstructive disease, that's the perfect patient for the coronary CTA. In older patients, over 65, or patients that you do highly suspect have coronary disease, those are the patients to send for stress testing. And then I thought it was a little bit funny that they said, if you get an equivocal result, then just do the other test. <laughs> so equivocal coronary CTA, I'll send them for stress test. Equivocal stress <laughs> test, I'll send them for coronary CTA. All right. And then the last point that I would make is, again, they endorsed shared decision-making protocols, including for potential discharge of intermediate risk patients. And I think that's really important to start thinking about now. We all agree that low-risk patients, send them home, no workup. And in this paper, they say no workup for the next 30 days is necessary. But what about intermediate risk? Well, traditionally, intermediate is an automatic OBS or admit. And I think it's reasonable that with those intermediate risk patients, those are the patients that you might actually start using the shared decision-making for and say, you know, uh, Mr. Jones, this is your risk. We can either admit you or OBS you here in the hospital, or we can send you for outpatient expedited workup and then discuss the the shared decision-making plan with those patients. And so that might actually get more patients discharged faster also. So we've never really thought about intermediate risk patients as going home. But with shared decision-making, I think it's a reasonable option. Summary. So there are some good things in here. And I think the good things in here, Amal, are things that echo what we've talked about in the past, what the ASEP guidelines have discussed in the past. Things like you said, shared decision-making, the different risk for certain racial and ethnic minority groups, the different symptoms that may be seen in women. These are things that we have talked about in the past, but it's good to see them formalized in this kind of a document that many, many folks are going to read both within emergency medicine and of course, outside of our specialty. But at the same time, there are some things that we need to be aware about in here that are inaccurate, flat out wrong, and really shouldn't change our management. Starting with that 6% discharge rate from the ED of ACS, we know that that is not true. That has been debunked many times. The references that lay list here, as you pointed out, are quite old. And then the two other big things that I take away from here that we have to be really wary about is one, using this term non-cardiac chest pain or telling the patient that after our evaluation, we have determined that this is not coming from your heart because we just can't do that. And what we're really doing is risk stratification. And when we have that discussion with the patient, telling them based on our evaluation, you are very low risk or low risk for this to be a cardiac cause of your chest pain. And I think it's okay for you to follow up. I've spoken with your doctor or I've arranged for that follow-up to happen. And that's a much better way to have that discussion, especially when we have that shared decision-making. I mean, Amal, it's really easy to say shared decision-making and tell the patient, hey, it's not your heart. You want to go home? Right. I mean, who's going to stay then? But that's not the way we should be having that discussion. 
And then of course, the idea of this warranty period that you are guaranteed to not have a cardiac event after having one of these tests. And not that having a normal angio and then coming back means I have to do a full workup. That is a pretty good, guarantee is not the right word, but a pretty good way of putting them in a very low risk category for ACS. The idea that a normal stress test gives you any kind of safe period we have known for a long time is not true, and we shouldn't be bringing that back in. And I think those two points, the idea of non-cardiac chest pain, the idea of the warranty period, regardless of what is in this document, we should not be changing our management, changing the way that we phrase things to the patient or in our charts about these topics. That was a really great summary, Swami. And again, I know I started out fairly negative about this paper. I think overall, this is a good paper and it's taking us a couple of steps forward. But just as you pointed out, I think it's important to know about some of the limitations and uh, falsehoods that may be portrayed in this paper. No guideline is ever perfect, but you've got to know about the, I guess, the imperfections, and that's what we've tried to do. So kudos to the authors for putting this out. I hope in the future that there's more emergency medicine involvement in articles that pertain to emergency medicine. All right. Thanks so much, Amal, for going through this with us. And to the listeners, you're welcome for saving you a 99-page read. <laughs> Take care, Swami. Tired of going commando into lawsuits? Stop messing around. Well, it's time to put on some medical legal briefs with Mike Weinstock. Stick around. Welcome to another episode of Medical Legal Briefs, where we use legal outcomes to make our patients safer. And I am excited to be joined by a friend of the program, Susie Demister, EM attending St. Charles Hospital in Bend, Oregon, and also the section editor for Corpendium Cardiovascular Disease. Susie, welcome. Mike, thanks so much for inviting me as a guest. The case. So Susie, why don't we jump right into this case? Will you tell us about this 24-year-old man who presented with chest symptoms? The decedent presented to the ED at 10.56 a.m. on August 14th, a note from physician at 11.15 a.m. A 24-year-old man presents with a chief complaint of chest congestion, pain when taking a deep breath, chest discomfort, fever and back pain, and coughing. Triage vitals with a temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit and a pulse of 116. Chest x-ray was noted to be normal and patient received a diagnosis of bronchitis. The patient received 650 milligrams of Tylenol at 11.20 a.m. and was discharged home at 11.25 a.m. with a prescription for an antibiotic and a opiate for chest discomfort. So Susie, we are basically, to summarize here, we have a 24-year-old with a URI, right? I mean, and, and just in all fairness to this clinician who saw the patient, it's like, we see these people all the time and almost all the time, they have a viral syndrome, and we give them some medicine, and they get better. Now, there are a couple of curious things that I just wanted to highlight on here before you and I delve into what could be a differential, not only as far as what is likely going on, but some of the less likely things, but can't miss things that could be going on. The first is that the patient got a narcotic medicine for their chest pain, and that's a little unusual. The second thing is that the note from the physician was at 11.15, and the patient was discharged home at 11.25. Now, I have to say that good job on the throughput numbers, and I'm not criticizing them for that, but I mean, this is like unbelievably fast seeing this patient and getting them out. 
And the only reason I mention that is because later, when we get to some of the legal commentary, this is going to really come into play. What do you think about going through a differential? I can start with the first one, and I've already said it, and it really is the same thing at the patient was diagnosed with acute viral bronchitis. But Susie, there are so many more possibilities. Some things on my differential, I mean, probably unlikely to be acute coronary syndrome, right? This is a 24-year-old. But I would be thinking about things like PE, maybe a pneumonia, less likely malignancy, and then some of those really rare things like myocarditis or esophageal rupture or fistula, or maybe like a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which we've talked a lot about. Yeah, when we think of our big three, ACS, PE, and dissection, ACS, again, pretty unlikely, but it might be nice to find out about exertional pain, diaphoresis, radiation, or vomiting, right? PE, it's pleuritic, so it would have been nice to have some thought of like unilateral pain or swelling of the legs or a past diagnosis of hypercoagulable state or recent travel. And then the patient does have back pain, so a thoracic aortic dissection is still in play. Patient's a little bit tachycardic. Now, they're febrile, so probably they have more of an infectious type of thing, but we know that you can get at least a little bit elevated temperature with PE, and that was one of the diagnoses that you talked about. So the chest pain and type of consideration really leaves a lot of things still on the plate. And as we all know, Susie, you know, you and I are not paid to be usually right. I mean, my neighbor is usually right. They're, they're not a physician, you know, so they're usually right. But again, that's not why patients come to us. So why don't we jump now to what actually happened to that patient? We'll find out the actual diagnosis and then some of the legal considerations. We'll bring some literature in here as well as some further points from the Corpendium chapter, then we can talk about an approach to hopefully have all of us expand our differential in such a way that we would not miss this and understand some of the testing that we can do to make sure we catch this diagnosis. This patient was prescribed, as you said, the acetaminophen. They had the antibiotic prescription as well as the narcotic. They were discharged home at 11.25 in the morning. And unfortunately, the next morning were found unresponsive in their home and they were pronounced dead at 6.52 a.m. An autopsy done shortly after confirmed a diagnosis of viral myocarditis and a likely thought of cardiac dysrhythmia, which caused the patient's death. A lawsuit was brought against the defendant physician with the allegation that the defendant was negligent in failing to order any cardiac workup to rule out a cardiac-related problem. So what I'm going to do, Susie, is just read the opening statement from the plaintiff. Then you and I can go through a bit of a deep dive in the literature, talking a little bit more about myocarditis. And again, this is pre-COVID myocarditis, like you said. We'll go through some trial testimony, closing statements, then we'll find out what the jury actually decided. Here is the plaintiff's opening statement. In this case, you'll hear a lot of medicine, but this case is going to be about how much time the defendant really spent with a gentleman who came to his emergency room with a significant condition. It will be about how much time is appropriate to spend with somebody who comes in with chest pain, and I expect you'll hear the evidence to be that less than five minutes is certainly not an appropriate amount of time to do a complete evaluation. 
So Susie, will you tell us how the defendant approached the defense of this case? And then you've prepared some further discussion on the diagnosis of myocarditis. The defendant denied the allegations of negligence. The defendant contended that the plaintiff's decedent presented with symptoms which were consistent with bronchitis, and he had no symptoms which were consistent with fulminant myocarditis. Let's review a bit about myocarditis. There's a bit of overlap with pericarditis, and you often, you can have both. Myocarditis is inflammation of the myocardium and unfortunately can present with a widely variable spectrum of disease and a wide spectrum when we're talking about the degree of ventricular dysfunction. We term it acute if the symptoms progressed over less than three months and fulminant myocarditis occurs very quickly over two weeks and manifests often with electrical instability and cardiogenic shock. Again, there's a huge spectrum of presentation, but there's some things we can consider in a patient of any age, especially in the presence of a viral illness. Unexplained tachycardia, that's a big red flag. That's also a red flag for other things like a pericardial effusion and for pulmonary embolism, but it should also raise suspicion for myocarditis and probably a good argument to at least do a quick bedside ultrasound for some of those other things looking for a pericardial effusion or maybe right heart strain. So this is tough. I mean, this was a really tough case because the patient had something that usually is reassuring to us. They had an alternative diagnosis. Now, with the cough, was it a dry cough or productive cough? How was that fever related? Was that a fever that the patient said they had or actually something objectively that we got, which it sounds like it was the objective fever in the ED? And How about a recheck of the heart rate? Because you're exactly right, that unexplained tachycardia or even explained, that's a pretty high heart rate and maybe it would have been nice to see if that came down. Unfortunately, and as the plaintiff alleged, the patient was in the ED for an exceedingly short amount of time. So how about some diagnostic tests that we can use? If we do an ultrasound and it's totally normal, we've ruled out pericardial tamponade, of course, probably significant pericardial effusion. We can look for right heart strain for something like PE, but the ultrasound can't rule out myocarditis. So what are we left with at the bedside when we're in the ED trying to figure out a diagnosis of possible myocarditis, differentiating it from this like totally benign viral self-limiting bronchitis? Well, I don't know about you, but here in Bend, we do myocardial biopsies on all of these patients. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I usually do it with my teeth, actually. So I just sort of get in there and and get that biopsy done very, very quickly. Yes, it's it's advanced line ER, right? Tertiary care. Yes, we're (laughs) we're very progressive here. Right. (laughs) But no, unfortunately, I mean, great question. There's not a non-invasive diagnostic test as a gold standard diagnosis for myocarditis, but there are some things we can do after we at least consider the diagnosis. And that's really the key is we're not going to make this diagnosis without considering it. And I think one of the problems with this case is that a diagnosis was made of a viral bronchitis. And we didn't think about something I think we're thinking about more with COVID is this, can you have two things going on? So COVID and, right? We see that a lot. But in this case, there was one diagnosis that the physician felt explained it all, and he moved on to discharging. Some basic things, if you have a patient who is tachycardic, is to place them on a cardiac monitor, at least for some period of time. What we're looking for is some ectopy or dysrhythmia. We can obtain an EKG. This is a very easy test. It's low cost. It's not harmful to the patient. 
And tachycardia is going to be the most common finding in patients with myocarditis. We may see ischemic looking EKGs, and you could see this with pericarditis as well. Bradycardia blocks. The board question is going to be an AV block with someone with a recent tick bite. But it's important to keep in mind that EKGs in myocarditis do not follow rules. So you can pretty much see anything, including a normal EKG. And then lastly, obtaining a troponin. So we're not necessarily going to order a troponin or serial troponins in this case for ACS, and you can document that. But patients with myocarditis, as opposed to patients with pericarditis, are going to have elevated troponins. And so in my opinion, this is a pretty great way to rule out myocarditis. So that's a really important consideration. And what you said before, (laughs) as the most important thing, and I've said this many times, so broken record alert, if it's not in your differential, it won't be in your diagnosis. And absolutely, it did not seem that this was in the differential in any way, shape, or form for this physician. Chest x-ray can be normal. Echocardiogram can be normal. EKG will usually show sinus tachycardia, but in this situation, it seemed like that was attributed to the underlying process of what they thought was a viral bronchitis, but they did not check a troponin, again, probably because that wasn't even considered. Thinking about an elevated troponin in a 24-year-old, we're thinking probably not ACS, but more likely to be some sort of infectious type of thing like myocarditis with that prodrome and a risk of potential arrhythmia. Susie, I wanted to do this. I have some trial testimony, and I thought we could go back and forth with this. I will be the plaintiff attorney and if it's okay, and I know it might be uncomfortable for you here, so you can, you can tell me if it is, but you will be the plaintiff expert witness who is saying this physician did a bad job. So here is me as the plaintiff attorney, you as the plaintiff expert witness, both testifying against the defendant physician, and I start off. I'd like you to assume that the defendant saw the patient at 11.15 based upon the records and had written an order for acetaminophen and completed his exam by 11.20. Do you have an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty whether it would ever be appropriate to do a history and physical exam in five minutes or less? I do, sir. And what is your opinion? It's impossible to do a competent history and physical exam in five minutes. It would take at least 20 minutes to get an appropriate history and examination from a patient like Jeffrey. Objection! At this point, the defense counsel objects. They complain that the plaintiff's pretrial disclosure had focused solely on the defendant's failure to order an EKG as their main allegation and had not included an opinion that the defendant's examination of Jeffrey fell below the standard of care because it was too brief. The judge overruled the objection. And then later during the examination, the plaintiff counsel asked. So now, Susie, will go back into our roles, me as the plaintiff attorney, you as the plaintiff expert witness. Do you have an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, whether the deviations from the standard of care that you've listed here today, including the length of the interaction, the failure to obtain an EKG, do you have an opinion as to whether these failures were a substantial contributing factor in causing the patient's death? I do, sir. And what is your opinion? Most definitely, and unfortunately, these all contributed directly to Jeffrey dying. The plaintiff goes on to state, and this is a summary of part of their closing argument, I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that when a young man comes to an emergency department, feeling lousy enough to go to an ED at 24 years old and has chest pain, discomfort, call it what you want, 
the standard of care is to spend a little bit more than five minutes. Jeffrey was in that emergency room for half an hour and left 10 minutes after the defendant first laid eyes on him. And Jeffrey was seen by the doctor whose job it was to care for him for less than five minutes. Consider five minutes or less during your deliberation. So Susie, stepping out of our roles, like all the way out of our roles here, I have to say, you know, 20 minutes with the patient. I mean, my own personal practice, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I mean, unless this is like a, you know, hypotensive nursing home patient or whatever, I can't remember ever spending 20 minutes with a 24-year-old with what I thought was acute bronchitis. I agree with you. I mean, we're getting pretty close to critical care time by 20 minutes. I mean, (laughs) I think I've told, you know, medical students, like, you need to be back to present the patient within 12 minutes for, you know, for the average. But I will say five minutes seems, you know, with some abnormal vitals does seem a little bit brief. And so so that's the really main point of this medical legal brief is like, what are the opportunities to move from standard of care to excellence in care? One would be to recheck that heart rate, maybe after the acetaminophen, after some oral fluids, just for example, and to see, is it now 125 or has it gone down to 98, for example? A second thing would be an expansion of the differential diagnosis with chest pain and fever. Ask some further questions about the chest pain. And I mean, even speaking further to what you had mentioned before, the patient not only had chest pain, which maybe in 24 isn't a heart attack, ACS, but there was pleuritic pain, consideration of PE, and there was back pain, consideration of a thoracic aortic dissection. So there was certainly a lot of other things still hanging out there in the differential that really weren't considered during that time. Give me some other medical take-home points, Susie, and then I will share with our listener who hopefully are not driving now because they might you know, drive off the road when they hear the verdict in this case. But share with me a couple of other medical take-home points, again, moving from standard of care to excellence in care before we, we reveal the legal outcome. Well, I think what really sets us apart as emergency physicians in emergency medicine is at least considering life threat. So it doesn't mean you have to work every patient up who's 24 with viral symptoms for myocarditis or aortic dissection. But before you discharge any patient, think, have I considered life-threatening etiologies of their presentation? And myocarditis reminds me a lot of aortic dissection, right? In retrospect, we see things were off, the puzzle pieces kind of fit, but when you're seeing the patient right there in front of you, The key is, again, we've both mentioned this, is considering the diagnosis. And once you do that, you can throw the patient on the monitor, you can grab that EKG, and you can order that troponin. It's all about that piece of considering the diagnosis while you're seeing that patient. And we've got a great chapter in Corpendium looking at myocarditis, at pericarditis, looking at the things that we need to do to think about this diagnosis when the patient's in front of us, and then what we can do to help diagnose it. And let's get into just a couple of the pearls in that chapter. Like pericarditis, the symptoms and EKG findings of myocarditis can mimic ACS. EKG can show many different things, most commonly sinus tachycardia, but does not rule out myopericarditis. Troponins, that's going to be a great test. Ordering that troponin, it's going to be elevated with myocarditis, but not with pericarditis. And then lastly, patients with myocarditis can initially appear stable. Vital signs could be normal, or they could be abnormal, as with this case. And big red flag is that unexplained tachycardia or tachypnea. Susie, I love those pearls, and this is a tough diagnosis to make. I mean, this is a fairly common misdiagnosis that does then proceed to legal action. And 
but it's nice to highlight this and to think about some of those ways that can actually make the diagnosis. So this case did proceed to trial, so it wasn't just settled out of court. The trial lasted for five days, and at the conclusion, the jury deliberated for about three and a half hours and returned its verdict in the favor of the plaintiff against the defendant. The jury awarded the plaintiff the sum of $2.9 million in damages. Susie, thank you so much for joining. And this has been a hopefully helpful case to enable us to avoid missing this diagnosis, which can be devastating, as we saw in this case. This is Mike Weinstock for Medical Legal Briefs, where we use legal outcomes to make our patients safer. Look forward to talking to you next time, Susie. Thanks again for having me, Mike. It was great to review myocarditis, pericarditis, and I will talk to you again soon. Near Hanging Injuries, Part 2. So now that we've gone through the worst case scenario type situation in the recess booth, let's talk about all the rest of the patients that aren't perhaps needing the rapid intervention that our patient did. History. So just to start with the clinical presentation, I just want to know, Kenji, what's important on history to you when you see these patients? One of the things that I really want to know is what happened? What do we know? Who's there? Who, what kind of family do they have? Do they have a husband? Do they have a wife? Do they have parents? Who is there? I think all of those things are really important to us as clinicians because the moment that everything has initially been stabilized and they're on the way to imaging, the parents are going to be there or the kids are going to be there or their partner is going to be there and we've got to talk to them and we've got to do that well. Secondly, any of the other medical stuff that we normally are chasing after, there are medical illnesses, what drugs have they taken, both prescribed, and especially those things that are not prescribed, and how does that impact how we're going to work these patients up, all that information is critical as well, so we'd like to know that. And then the last uh, thing that comes to mind is, although it doesn't directly impact what we do, the timing of things, how long were they up in the air for, who took them down, what happened, what did they see? Any history like that can help bring everything all together for us with what we're going to see on the CAT scan once we get those results. So any other scene history or information, notes, timing, all that sort of stuff, I think is very important. So I know it seems like a lot of stuff, but I think all of those things are very important for the next steps as we take in these patients. Exam. We've already talked about the physical exam of the airway, which is really paramount here. I mean, you're really all over the airway. Is there sub-Q emphysema? Is there strider? I mean, these are the really critical upfront things. But then we all know, we're all told to memorize that there's the tardieu spots, right? The signs of this increase. Yeah, well, I don't think it's that well (laughs) pronounced. But these are basically the signs of the rapid sudden increase in intracranial pressure, the petechiae of the mucous membranes, the subconjunctival hemorrhage. I want to know how important those things are if they're there. And, and if the ligature mark, does it, does it, is it important that there's a ligature mark there? I mean, wh- what do we need to know about that? If they're there, you should note them. I think that those are maybe not proof positive, but good indicators that there truly was a good mechanism of injury that uh, supports the history that you've gotten. But the absence of those really don't help us. And because of that, the reality is all of these things, the ligature marks, the petechiae, all of those things, they truly don't help direct our management, unfortunately. It's interesting when you look even at these autopsy studies, the reality is 
not all of these patients that were true hangings to the point of death come in with a ligature mark that you can see. And that's under close scrutiny by someone that's very experienced at this. So the reality is, to answer your question, they really don't impact our clinical management. Imaging. All right, let's get into diagnostic. Let's get into some controversy, for goodness sake, here. There's too much agreement here. I think we're, we both agree that a chest x-ray is not a bad idea when we're intubating someone who's at risk for aspiration and for all these different uh, varieties of pulmonary edema that we're discussing. But let's talk about the CT head. My take, uh, Kenji, is that if they're not completely normal, that they would for sure get a CT head. What's your threshold? I agree 100%. So really, there are three places that we're looking at. Absent anything else that we see on the exam where the arm looks like it might be fractured, we're looking at the head, we're looking at the cervical area, and we're looking at the chest. Those are the three areas that we're super worried about. For the head, I agree. The CT head is going to be the diagnostic imaging of choice. And anyone that doesn't have a perfectly normal GCS, regardless of what the talk screen says, and you think it might be intoxicants, they're going to get a CT scan of the head. I think it's really, really important. The cervical area, I think what we need to do to image that area as the diagnostic screen is going to be CT angiogram. And that's really going to let us look at all of the structures that we're worried about. It's going to give us a snapshot of the airway. It's definitely going to let us look at the arterial side of the vasculature, and it's going to give us a pretty good view of the venous side to see if it's clotted or not. And then it's going to let us look at the spine and the soft tissues. So the CT angio of the neck is going to be key for everybody in the cervical region. And then finally, yeah, I agree with you. I think getting a chest x-ray up front as a screen, especially if they're going to be intubated, but anyone that, you know, is sick enough to be not asymptomatic, I think they're all going to get a chest uh, x-ray to start. And if there's anything abnormal that you're worried about on that, I think a CT scan of the uh, chest would be the next step. So really, CT angio of the cervical area or CT angio neck, and then finally a chest x-ray plus or minus a CT scan of the chest. Now, the real controversy, which I know you're going to ask me about, is the GCS-15 patient, right? Well, I mean, I was going to bring it up because it's in your own journal. In the Journal of Emergency Medicine, you know, Kenji's colleagues have written very provocative editorials saying things like, you know, we're overdoing it here. And, uh, and you know, have we set the imaging threshold really too low so that we're basically imaging everyone who comes in where, where the history is there? Even, even you told us maybe the physical won't be there, right? So, so yeah, we want you to give some pushback and give your perspective. This is a very difficult thing. And just to clarify, what we're talking about is the GCS-15, they're completely evaluable, and they're asymptomatic. Everyone else is going to fall into that imaging category that we just finished talking about. But for that patient that comes in and they're clearly evaluable and there doesn't appear to be anything going on, there are at least four, I think you may have found another one, so at least five retrospective studies all within the last decade, decade and a half, looking specifically at this patient cohort. I think the first thing for anyone that hasn't looked at this literature recently is that these are very small case series, very small. So less than 100 patients for the most part. They're retrospective. And unfortunately, we, as you know, don't have a really good grasp of how good that clinical exam was that was documented in these charts that were used to pull these and put these studies together. So I think the first big take-home message is Yes, the incidence of injuries in the asymptomatic patient is probably very low, but it's not zero, and it's based on relatively weak data. So I think that's the first most important thing to uh, note. The second thing is, 
When that patient actually comes in and they're sitting there in front of you and their GCS is 15 and they're asymptomatic, I think what you're going to elect to do really depends on a whole host of things. I think the most conservative thing to do would be to get that CT angio to rule out effectively a carotid injury. So it really comes down to the individual clinician and their comfort level with whether or not this patient truly sustained significant trauma to their neck. Okay, so let me ask you these questions. There are certainly reports then of completely asymptomatic patients with normal exams that later have sequelae of carotid dissection. Is that the specific concern? That would be my concern. And in fact, if you look at these papers, that is the missed injury. And although, again, we're talking about one in the entire study, that's still one patient. The likelihood of a missed carotid dissection or intimal flap is exceedingly low. I think we would all agree with that. I think that there are alternatives to diagnose those injuries as well, which include a duplex ultrasound. So if you elect not to do a CT angio, which I think is fine, then another thing that you might think about doing is a simple non-invasive, non-radiation-inducing duplex to look specifically at the vasculature of the neck. And that would be a hybrid option. I think the option of doing nothing at all is, I mean, it's an option, but probably based on the evidence that's available right now, not an option that I would personally follow. Treatment. Okay, so basically, you know, just to paraphrase, if the history is there, you're not willing to take the risk of a missed carotid injury on a asymptomatic patient. So you go ahead and, and do angio to image those patients. I guess the next question I'd have for you is that when you do find that case in that asymptomatic patient with the flap, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So at the very least, they're going to get an antiplatelet agent, number one. And number two, they're going to get a repeat CAT scan of the neck in uh you know, a debatable amount of time, but we are definitely, now we know there's an injury and we want to make sure that we follow it to resolution. The vast majority of these, the vast majority will not need an operation. And with an antiplatelet agent, when we follow them up, it's going to get smaller and smaller and it's going to resolve. But now that we know about it, we do want to make sure that it does resolve. I'd argue that it's a sticky situation because we really don't have the evidence base for the therapy, but at the same time, it has become accepted to use these antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapies in that clinical context. So it kind of puts us in a difficult place not to identify the injury. So it's, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, a, it's an area of concern, but thank you for, you know, like your perspective is pretty important to a lot of people. So no, I think the, you know, the, no, no worries. I think the other thing that I think is important to think about, especially for people that work in busy centers, you get that CT angio and that CT angiogram is negative. Now you can send that patient home. The problem is if you don't get that, now you've got to ask yourself, well, how long are we going to watch this patient? Do we watch them for six hours, 12 hours, 24? Do we admit them overnight? We just don't know the answer to that. So one other benefit of getting that CT angio is you get it, you read it, it's normal, then they can go home. So it's just another thought for one more reason why it might be a good idea to image. This area definitely needs more study. It 100% is worthwhile because there's a lot that we just don't know. And this controversy that GCS-15, a valuable and completely asymptomatic patient, would be at the top of the list. And so just some other quickies. I just want to know what you do on your service. I I know that we don't have literature-based answers for these, but I quickly want to tick through whether you use steroids in any of these cases, whether you use antibiotics in any of these cases, you know, because of concerns about uh, mediastinitis, et cetera. 
And, and lastly, whether or not you're using an anti-epileptic agent prophylactically. Those are excellent questions. So in the ICU setting, patient comes up, first of all, steroids, if the patient is intubated and we don't get that cuff leak and we're worried that there's airway swelling, yes, in those patients, we're going to do a whole host of things, which would include steroids, see if we can decrease that swelling prior to extubation. And so number two, antibiotics. There would be no indication for routine antibiotics in these patients, but I think you mentioned this earlier on, but aspiration is a big thing for these patients. You truly, you know, it's a big problem. These are unprotected airways. And if there's any evidence that they've aspirated, then yes, we would give them antibiotics. However, routinely, we would not. And as far as the anti-seizure medications, yeah, absolutely. I think The reality is we do not have data like we do for, for example, traumatic brain injury, where it has been shown to be useful, although that, you know, is controversial as well, despite the data that's out there from our institution. Do you give it or not? Do you you give it or not? That's what we want to know. Yes. Okay. I would say if you truly have that anoxic brain injury, yes, we would give it. But again, there just isn't data for that, like many of the things that we do. All right. Well, Kenji, thank you so much for being so candid and giving it to us straight. As always, I can't thank you enough. Thanks a lot. Uh, Absolutely. It's always great to hang out. Summary. First, the airway will be approached in full C-spine precautions. You're going to intubate these patients if there's any signs of airway obstruction, and strider would be the most important sign for that. Signs of impending obstruction. And so when you've got a lot of trauma that's obvious in the area with fractures, maybe even some subcutaneous emphysema. Those are signs of impending problems. And also, if they've got respiratory distress, wheezes, crackles, that can also happen after these injuries, and these patients also should be intubated. And finally, patients who have altered mental status, and we try not to put an actual number on that. If they're agitated and they're a danger to themselves and they're impeding management, that would require intubation. These patients should be monitored very carefully because they can have sudden arrhythmias. But if they are hypotensive, if they have low blood pressure, you must search for another cause. There's something else going on, like they've ruptured a spleen or they've ingested a toxin. Very important not to write off low blood pressure simply to a near hanging injury. Should be judicious with fluids, meaning don't give them except for maintenance fluids because this could worsen cerebral edema and also the pulmonary edema and laryngeal edema that we talked about earlier. It's really important to elevate the head of the bed 30 degrees in these patients, especially if they've got brain injury, because the C-spine collar is actually impeding jugular venous drainage, and so we really want to overcome that by making sure that the head position is right. And lastly, it's important to do a complete thorough survey, looking for any other signs of trauma and other things like signs of a suicide note, medications, other things that might really bring to bear on the acute management. Regardless of what the physical examination shows, Kenji feels very strongly that these patients require a minimal workup, which includes a chest x-ray, a CT of the head if there's any alteration of mental status, and generally a CT angiogram of the neck to assess for vascular injury. Also very important is a tox screen checking for acetaminophen and ASA levels because they will require treatment as well. The mainstay of treatment is supportive care, and that's not just lip service because supportive care has been associated with improved patient-oriented outcomes. And as we mentioned in the piece, 
the prognosis for those patients that haven't suffered a cardiac arrest is actually surprisingly good. And some patients that look pretty terrible when they come in actually do improve significantly and some recover completely. So that's very important as well. And finally, when it comes to the role for antibiotics, steroids, and anti-seizure medication like phenytoin, I think the verdict is still out, and largely this will depend on local practices and your consultants. So that's your quick and dirty summary. For those that want even a deeper dive, and for all of the references, please consult the Corpendium chapter, which is just excellent. It goes into more detail in all of these subjects and has all the references that you need. That's a wrap. Hey, it's time for Rick's rant, and I'm going to jump in here because Rick's audio quality wasn't great, so I'm going to sort of splice stuff in, as it were. So Rick's got a guest, Amish Shah. Now, Amish is in Arizona as an ER doc, but also, and this is the point, he's also in the Arizona legislature, and this is super important for those of you that want to feel empowered to make emergency medicine better. And do you make the big bucks in the state legislature in Arizona? Well, you have to find out. So tell me a little bit about your background and, and some of the things that you've done in the journey to where you are now? Well, I've, I've been really lucky. I've had a wonderful career in emergency medicine. I graduated residency at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. After that, I, I became a faculty member at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in Manhattan. While I was there, I did work with the New York Jets and the NFL. We did a little bit of work trying to standardize the emergency care across the league with all 32 teams. That led to a sports medicine fellowship. I was getting more interested and I wanted to get the actual board certification. So I came to the University of Arizona in Tucson and finished a one-year sports medicine fellowship. I was supposed to go back, kind of fell in love with Arizona and decided to stay. Over the next several years, I worked at emergency departments all over the state, from Bullhead City to Cottonwood to Yuma. And it, it was a, a certainly different type of practice and enjoyed it. But after a few years of that, I, I said, you know, I kind of wanted to see an impact from, from my life outside of the emergency department. I mean, we, we can control what happens within the four walls, but we can't control what comes in through the front door. Public policy, politicians kind of control that. So one day I Googled nearest political meeting to me. There was one in North Scottsdale, and I, I lived only a few miles from there at the time. So I showed up, and, and mostly it's... Um, Women who, a little older demographic, all drinking champagne and mimosas over lunch at the Starfire Golf Club. They call it the Blue Tuesday group. And, and I showed up and, and they said, who are you, young man? And I said, Hi, my name is Amish. I live down the street. And they, and they said, well, what are you running for? And I said, no, 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 I'm not running for anything. And they looked at me and they said, yes, you are. And they grabbed me. They took me to their leader who was at the front of the room, <laughs> a woman I'm still friends with by the name of Linda. And she said, what now? What, what is this? You're, you're a physician and you just showed up here? I said, yeah, I just wanted to kind of see what's going on. And, and she said, well, I have just the guy for you. There's a, an emergency physician by the name of Eric Meyer, who was the house minority leader in, here in Arizona for, for a while. Really? And yeah. And, and so um, I met with him. We sat down, we talked for a while and he said, well, why don't you come volunteer on my campaign? And you know, that's kind of how it started. And then eventually I moved to a different house. A seat opened up in, in the district where I was living. And so I threw my hat in the ring and I won. And, and so there we are. First of all, how did he get elected? Well, he said basically that for 18 months, he knocked on eight and a half thousand doors 
and talk to people. And then when the election came around, he won. Five days a week from about 10 a.m. every morning to sunset, as if it was a full-time job. I would practice medicine about one day a week. So I obviously took a big cut to the income. And then one day I would just take completely off. But five days a week, I would start at about 10 o'clock. I would show up at somebody's door and I would just keep knocking door after door after door until the sun went down. And I did that for 18 straight months. And I knocked on 8,034 doors with no volunteers. You know, I, I just shook their hands. I sat in their living rooms. I spoke to people one-on-one. And I said to the voters, I, I, I just really want to get to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to know what you care about. And, and I want to represent you. And now he's in the legislature. He works Monday to Thursday, eight through six, and gets paid the very generous salary of $24,000. So he still works as an ER doc, you know, on weekends, nights, that kind of stuff. I've been in office now for going on three years. The session just started, so it's my fourth year. So over the course of these three years, I've, I've really learned how to build a lot of relationships, get to know a lot of people, and try to take good ideas and, and push them through the legislature. It's a point of pride for me because a lot of politics isn't that these days. You know, you get, a lot of people get hung up on the D and the R, and, and rather than doing that, it, it's, it's really important to focus on problems that people are having and trying to take their problems, hear their voices, and, and put solutions forward. So I've been lucky. I've had bipartisan bills go through for the last three years. Having those relationships really helps. I mean, that's, that's the political capital, social capital you need in order to go out there and try to, to actually make change. The basic uh, premise that he's going under is that he wants to try and make medicine and emergency medicine, but all of medicine, a healthy place. Uh, what things can we do to make it so that people don't burn out? Over, over the last three years, my, my biggest agenda since I got down there was taking people at the grassroots level, doctors, nurses, all, in fact, all healthcare workers, and trying to make sure that they live healthy and happy lives and that they find their work enjoyable and sustainable, right? So we, we don't want people burning out. And, and that's the umbrella under which I approached ASAP and as well as the Arizona Medical Association, as well as the Arizona Nurses Association and all of the other healthcare groups. So broadly, a lot of this falls under the burnout umbrella. So Dr. Shaw successfully introduced a bill to the Arizona legislature after this happened. It was actually a colleague that I'd worked with at one of the hospitals uh, in Arizona, um, out in rural Arizona. And he was at the nursing station and noticed that they had a non-medical person watching the telemonitors. So he, he had told the administration of the hospital that that, that isn't appropriate. That person wouldn't know what they were looking at. And so when, when he appropriately, he did the right thing, he appropriately put it up the chain, they, they found a way to, to get rid of him. We met with the folks who are in positions of power behind the scenes. He didn't want to testify in public. So I brought him into the office of the Speaker of the House and others. And I said, you know, meet my friend here. I'd like you to hear his story and, and what happened. And, and so telling that story allowed them to understand why this was a problem. This was what this piece of legislation was specifically about. There was already in place, as I understand it, you can't fire a whistleblower if they work for your hospital. But this was a situation where there was a loophole and the hospital could get you fired if you didn't work for them like this guy uh, was in a contract medical group. So that closed the loop. Thank you very much. So we were able to push it through the House and then push it through the Senate, and the governor signed it in the middle of 2021. Now, of course, it's never as simple as that, right? So there's a lot of touring and throwing and stuff. But the point of that story is that here was an egregious problem, and it got fixed at the highest level in that state by an emergency physician. 
And there's a number of different bills he's been working on. But this one, I think you might find particularly interesting. I've been working for the last three years on a bill to reduce assault in the emergency department. This, this is specifically the nurses are the most interested in this one. You know, the rates of our nursing colleagues getting assaulted in the ER is somewhere like 100%. So al- almost every ER nurse, if, if they work long enough, will get assaulted. Huge stakeholder group brought everybody in. Not everybody was happy with this one. But what we, what we said was we, we were going to put in some administrative changes so that the hospitals track and trace these assaults, similar to like needle sticks. If you've ever gotten a needle stick, you know that somebody's tracking you. But, but assaults are just sort of brushed under the, I mean, the nurses really felt that they were being dismissed. And so we wanted to make sure that there was signage saying that if you assault a healthcare worker, there will be a felony associated with it. We wanted to up the penalty. Currently, it's a class six felony, which is the lowest level felony to assault a healthcare worker. It's a class five felony just for reference to abuse an animal, like a dog or a cat in Arizona. So we wanted to bring that up to a class five because it couldn't be brought down to a misdemeanor. And that's what happens a lot. People are just let free and then they come back again and stalk the nurse or the doctor or whatever. That kind of stuff is not what we want happening. So so the assault bill is something I've passed through the House for the last three years in a row. And again, we're trying for the fourth year to get it through. We've, we've had a little trouble getting it through certain, you know, a couple individuals. And the list could go on and on and on. And Dr. Shaw says, this is not about the D and the R, the Democrat or the Republican. This is about looking for solutions that help everybody. And if you can find those solutions, you can get stuff through. Not every time but a lot of the time. Now, in this case, I am the only physician in the legislature. I b- believe I'm the only healthcare worker in the Arizona legislature. So it, it certainly helps because you open a window into our world for, for these folks. And, and that's part of actually getting to my message, which is to, to people out there all over the country. I would really love to see emergency physicians running for office all over the country because that's how we can make these kinds of changes happen. We, we've, we've seen over a, a generation lots of changes to the practice of medicine and specifically emergency medicine. And if you want to be part of the solution, part of it is that you have to have a seat at the table. And so this really is sort of a broader message for emergency physicians all over the country. Think about running. You can be a good citizen and, and serve your country and, and, and also do a lot of good and, and represent our profession. I actually think it's pretty inspiring. And you could list off in your own head a bunch of things that we could do to make things better. Nursing ratios, for example. Why is it okay that an ER nurse can have 20 patients, but upstairs, uh, two or three? We could do things, theoretically, at the state level that said, no, you can't do that. We should all be sharing the burden. We have to take care of one another. We have to take care of healthcare workers. When I first started at Mount Sinai, there's a great emergency physician, well-known by the name of Sheldon Jacobson, and he was the chair when I started there. And, and when I was in the interview, I remember him telling me, here's the deal. I take care of you, you take care of the patients. And that echoes from the house of God, where, whereby I remember a line in that book that, that says, well, if nobody takes care of us, how can we take care of other people? So part of the reason I'm doing this is, is because I, I think I'm trying to stay true to the legacy and the wisdom that was given to me by a very senior emergency physician. Somebody needs to take care of them as they take care of others. And that's the way in which I, I believe that we, we really can mitigate the burnout situation. Dr. Shah, so much. Uh, We're appreciative for everything that you've told us about in terms of your bill, your career in the legislature. Very inspiring for sure. I have a feeling, Dr. Shah, that you're not going to be stopping at the Arizona legislature. 
Uh, I, have a, I have a feeling that this is just the beginning of a very interesting career. Thanks so much for being with us. No, no further questions. Thank you. <laughs> well, I thought that was pretty awesome. So thanks to Rick and to Amish Shah and to Rachel Linda, who actually got Rick and Amish together. I hope it inspires some of you to go and perhaps do a similar thing. Herb it out. I'm here again with Dr. Ali Raja, who is a professor of emergency medicine and radiology at Massachusetts General. Ali Raja. How are you today, Ali? I'm great, Jess. Thanks for having me back on. The subject on my mind today is nasal bone fractures. I love nasal bone fractures. These are great. Do you? (laughs) Can I tell you why? It's because they always have a story. You know, you don't get a nasal bone fracture typically just walking down the street. It's because something happened, right? It's either a gnarly car accident or you got into a fight at a bar over somebody's girlfriend or boyfriend. Or, you know, something happened. Or even if you fell, it's usually some cool fall where you were too drunk to stick your hands out and your face caught your fall instead of your hands. There's always (laughs) something. So there's always a story behind a nasal bone fracture. Everybody good? Everybody good? good? That is true. That is true. And I'm not talking about someone with severe facial trauma. I'm talking about the isolated nasal bone fracture. You got popped in the nose. Now, of course, we know that you can get a CT, and that's generally going to answer the question. But not everyone needs a CT of their face. So what about other imaging modalities? What about just a plain x-ray of the nasal bone where you get that standard two-view image? Is that a test that's worth doing? How good or how bad of a test is it? Let's discuss. So here's the thing, and this is why nasal bone fractures come up so much, right? Facial injuries are really important, but they're also exceptionally visible, right? The face, uh, it impacts our ability to eat, to speak, to interact with others, to judge other people's emotions. And we're really attuned as human beings to changes in facial structure and features. So patients come in and, you know, they might not be as concerned about the little humeral fracture, or they might not be concerned about small fractures in other places. But if their nose looks a little wonky, they're going to notice, their family's going to notice, and they're going to come in and they're going to want something. Whether it's, it's an exam, whether it's an x-ray, whether it's a CT, they're going to come in expecting and hoping for something. So there's a little bit of that bias that goes into this as well. And I think, you know, the first thing to talk about is, is whether or not we can just diagnose this clinically, right? Whether or not we need imaging at all. And as you said, right, a lot of the times we can diagnose nasal bone injury and fracture clinically without getting any imaging. If somebody's got a big, wonky, you know, sort of sideways bent nose, we know they're fractured. So we're not getting the imaging to figure out whether or not it's fractured. We're getting the imaging to figure out whether or not something needs to get done. Now, for patients who have really minor injuries, when we're talking about the patient who like, my nose kind of hurts here, pointing over the bony bridge of the nose but everything kind of looks okay to you, well, that's the patient that we should talk about and whether or not they need any x-rays at all. So I think both of those cases, the patient that has the obvious fracture of the nose and the patient that doesn't have much wrong at all, we can talk about nasal uh, imaging choice. But I wanted to just start off by mentioning what you said at the beginning, which is that if somebody comes in and has other facial injury, just go to the CT, right? If somebody has a broken zygoma because they got punched not just in the nose, but there as well. If somebody is you know, a bad MVC and they've got a broken face, you're going to get the CT. Don't even think about getting a nasal bone x-ray. We're just talking about the patient with an isolated nasal injury. I think that's a really great question. Sometimes you can look at the patient and you know, yeah, it looks like you broke your nose. I could tell just by looking at you, you broke your nose. And in that case, 
what exactly are we going to accomplish with the imaging? On one hand, you confirm, yes, it's broken and you can show the patient and they kind of came here for that answer and now you can definitively tell them. But are you helping with any sort of follow-up or preoperative planning? What's the end game by getting that x-ray? The patient who comes with the really broken nose, the one that is, again, isolated nasal fracture, but it's obviously broken and it's going to need to get something done. In that patient, go ahead and get the CT or send the patient out with close facial trauma follow-up to get the CT in clinic, right? If you work at a shop like mine where I've got, you know, random subspecialists just wandering through the emergency department looking for free food in our nurse's lounge, then if you know that you can get ENT follow-up for them in a couple of days, then talk to your facial trauma folks, whether it's ENT or plastics or OMFS or after whoever's managing that area of the face, have them follow up with them. They'll see the patient, they'll get a CT for operative planning anyway, and you're done. The other end of the spectrum, the patient who comes in with a nothing on their nose, you don't have to get any imaging at all if they are just tender at the bony bridge, but they're breathing well, their nose is straight, they don't have a nasal septohematoma. That patient, you can also just discharge home without any imaging. But if you find yourself in a situation where you've got the gnarly injured, broken nose and no chance of getting follow-up, you need to get the CT because that's the only way that your surgeon is going to know how she can actually fix this because they care how displaced it is. They care whether it's unilateral or bilateral. They care how comminuted it is. And so all of those things aren't as obvious on x-ray as they are on CT. So if you can get close follow-up and the patient is stable for discharge, they'll get the CT anyway. If you can't get close follow-up, get the CT in the ED. And then if you don't have much injury and they're straight and they're breathing and they don't have a nasal septal hematoma, you don't need to get much imaging and I would not get any imaging. And you're probably wondering, you're looking at me like, when are you going to talk about x-ray? That's right. You could read my facial expression. Yeah. So here's the thing about x-rays. X-rays have a sensitivity of about 60 or 70% for these fractures. The way that x-rays work is that in terms of these nasal injuries are if they're not somebody who needs surgical correction, you can start with an x-ray. But here's the thing. If that x-ray is negative and your pretest probability, your suspicion is high enough for a broken bone, if the sensitivity is only 70%, you're still going to end up getting a CT or whoever you have them follow up with is still going to end up getting a CT. So the negative x-ray isn't going to help you. So a positive x-ray. The question is, is that going to help you? And the problem is you won't really know because even if the nose is broken on that x-ray, the follow-up surgeon isn't going to be able to decide whether or not they need surgery until all the swelling is going down. And so you're still going to have them follow up with somebody on the outpatient side anyway, and they're still going to decide whether or not they get the CT or not. I have to tell you, overall, you would ask me, how often do you get x-rays for these patients in the ED? It's really rare. It's, it's usually either they need a CT now or they're going to follow up closely and get a CT or they don't really need much imaging at all because an x-ray with a sensitivity of 60 or 70% doesn't really help us. Can you imagine if, if we had like humoral x-rays with a sensitivity of 60 or 70% would never really know whether or not patients had humoral fractures and would go straight to MRI or CT. Clearly x-ray has a poor sensitivity, not going to be the study that we want. Someone out there is going to ask, so we've got to get an answer. Can I just use ultrasound instead? In the US, we don't do a lot of ultrasound for nasal bone fractures, but around the world they do. In fact, there was a study that came out with Japanese emergency physicians using ultrasound for kids to diagnose nasal bone fractures. And it's done 
not infrequently in other parts of the world, especially if you don't have CT sort of sitting around right and left. And so there are protocols for serial ultrasound examinations for the detection of nasal bone fractures in, in many places around the world. One thing to think about, not that we're going to do this on the fly, but ultrasound sensitivity and specificity for nasal bone fractures in these studies is actually higher than that of plain film. It's not CT, but it's actually better than plain film. Very cool. Very cool. I still see a role for getting the x-ray in many circumstances, I think really depending on what kind of institution you work at. If you work somewhere that you don't have a readily available CT scanner, but you are able to get x-rays and make that initial diagnosis, then the follow-up CT with the specialist, that seems like a, a reasonable pathway to go down. Does that make sense? It does. It makes sense if you are in a place where you don't have ready access to CT. I just wouldn't want anybody to be fooled into thinking that a false negative x-ray obviated a nasal bone fracture. Right. It's not going to totally rule it out, but it is more likely to pick up a nasal bone fracture if it's significantly displaced or deformed. As long as you still say that doesn't mean it's not broken, you still need to follow up with somebody. You still need to get seen because of the fact that you might need another x-ray or a CT as an outpatient. I think that's a fair conversation. Summary. If there's significant facial trauma, of course, we're going to start with a CT as long as that's available to us. The benefit of the CT is that it's going to be a lot more sensitive at diagnosing facial fractures and providing information to the facial surgeon that's going to be important in their decision about whether or not they need to operate. CT, hands down, is the superior study. But is there a role for plain radiographs? The sensitivity is around 60 to 70 percent, and a negative x-ray doesn't rule out a nasal bone fracture. A positive x-ray that identifies a nasal bone fracture still may need to be followed up at some point with a CT, whether that's in the emergency department or in the outpatient setting once referred to a facial surgeon. And while this isn't very impressive, there might still be a role for getting a plain radiograph of the nasal bone, especially if CT is not something that's readily available where you work. Finally, if you are a skilled ultrasonographer, consider ultrasound. In some studies, it has higher sensitivity and specificity than a plain radiograph. But remember, this is highly operator dependent. So either you or someone available to you should be comfortable performing and interpreting that study. Time for your ultra ultra summary. This is for a content that was in the April EMA. Abstract one. And uh, abstract one was a really good paper. It was from JAMA and it's about PE. And it's about whether you can use age adjusted D-dimer with the year's algorithm. And they did that. And they did it out of the emergency department. And they found that it worked, that you could significantly reduce the amount of imaging. Well done study. Much more complicated than I just made it out to be, so go listen to the whole thing. But the years plus age-adjusted D-diamonds is the first big good study that says that works. Abstract 2. Abstract 2 was a good paper. It was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and it was titled Rule Out Myocardial Infarction After 30 Minutes as an Alternative to One Hour, the Racing MI Cohort Study. I believe this was a Danish study. And they basically said these new ultra-sensitive troponins are so good at determining whether there's been ischemia, why wait an hour? To find out. So they did a time zero and time 30 minutes and compared it against the standard time zero and one hour to see how good this was for ruling out ischemia. And they said the zero to 30 was as good as the one hour. 
Now, the problems with this is that it's not huge and it's not very diverse population, but it does suggest that maybe we can get this down even further with these troponins, even down to 30 minutes. And that would be cool. So before you go doing it, though, are those patients that they looked after looking like your patients? We need to work that out first. Abstract three. Abstract three is a bit of a heads up. And the heads up is that there's a new decision instrument in town when it comes to managing children with mild traumatic brain injury. And it's called the KIDS, K-I-I-D-S dash TBI tool. And, you know, Sanjay couldn't talk more glowingly about how well done this was. It still needs to be validated, but it's got some big names in emergency medicine like Nate Koopman, a bunch of neurosurgeons, really well developed. If you go down this uh, algorithm and say no, no, no to everything, your chance of having a serious injury that's going to decompensate is very, very low. So you're going to hear more about this kids TBI tool. There's a lot of elements to it, not worth sort of saying here, but it was in academic emergency medicine. And we will make a calculator and throw it into Corpendium ASAP. Abstract 4. Abstract 4 was also a really good one, and it's about the differentiation of central from peripheral causes of acute vertigo in the emergency department setting with the HINTS, standing, and ABC2 tests, a diagnostic cohort. I'd not heard of the standing test, and basically uh, Sanjay thought that maybe it was if you stand up and you feel dizzy, it's positive, but it's actually just a little bit more than that. It's actually a four-step algorithm that is based on nystagmus with Frenzel glasses, head impulse test, gait evaluation, and positional tests. But it turns out that in this study that they found that the hints and the standing algorithms were very, very good for differentiating peripheral from central vertigo. But in this study, the peeps, the docs, they had some extra special training. So you want to get your extra special training so that you can do this, so that you can cut down the number of CT MRIs you're getting because this worked really well. Abstract 8. Okay, I'm going to bring up abstract 8, which is feasibility and usefulness of a rapid two-channel EEG monitoring point of care for acute CNS disorders in the pediatric emergency department and observational study. And basically this says, we tried this simple sort of EEG machine and it looked like it worked and helped us made the diagnosis of seizures. Okay. So the study, as Mike said, is not great. It's just a feasibility study, but you'd need to know that these are coming. There's actually a number of manufacturers that have these point of care EEGs. Back in the day, it used to be a big deal to do an EEG on somebody. You had to bring down the tech and a big machine and it was a pain. And if you were looking for non-convulsive status, big problem. And I was talking to a friend of mine, Deacon Mundavia, who's actually involved uh, with a company that makes these. And some of the data they have for like post-arrest and for people who aren't waking up and Non-convulsive status is probably way more common than we think. So just get ready for the fact that we are probably going to start using these more and more if the data continues to show that they can be used by us in the emergency department. And it might mean that if we can use these, we will start treating people that don't have obvious seizure activity. Early data suggests that it might be much more common than we think. Abstract 9. Abstract 9 was a good one. A great one. I would even say it was a delicious one made of a chocolate caramel bundt cake of some form because it was adverse events associated with electrical cardioversion in patients with acute atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. It's a study by Ian Steele. It was in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology, and it's sort of a reanalysis of all of the people that they've put into their early shock versus uh, rate control studies. So here in the US, if you come in with new onset AFib, we tend to rate control you, send you away, maybe anticoagulate you, and let a cardiologist deal with it later on. In Canada, they tend to say, if it's in a sort of a short period of time, let's just blast away and get you back into sinus rhythm. So this analysis was, is it safe to do it the Canadian way, blast away, get you back into sinus rhythm? And in this reanalysis, they said, 
You know, 13% of the time there was an adverse event that required an intervention. Most of the time that intervention wasn't a big deal. 0.4% of the time it was a bigger deal, although there was no death and no stroke. And the things that were associated with having to do things to you were actually more about the sedation and advanced age. So if you're over the age of 85, some bad things can happen. Guess what? If you're over the age of 85, bad things can happen. Just go into the bathroom. But the other big thing was the use of midazolam and fentanyl. These sedating agents in these patients often resulted in uh, you need to do some interventions. And so the big tape comb message that I think Sanjay really hit on the head was that it's about how you sedate somebody as much as the procedure itself. I've always felt that. I've always felt that it's about the trade-off between the sedation and the antiarrhythmics and the anticoagulation and the feeling bad over time. So if you're going to sedate these people and do it, I think personally you should use something short acting like propofol. Short on, short off. Let's get them back in the science rhythm. And these other agents, they've had their day. Abstract 12. So here's a clinical scenario that abstract number 12 deals with. So you've got this trauma patient, they come in, they're crying and banged up, mate, they flip the car and maybe you decide, oh, I'm going to the patient. You do all that stuff and then it comes back, you know, your chest x-ray is everything normal, but there's an occult pneumothorax on CT scan and the patient's already been intubated. Should you immediately go put in a chest tube? So this is something that would come up all the time back in the day. That occult pneumothorax, one that's not obvious on chest x-ray or obvious clinically, should you put a chest tube in? Because if you don't, it's going to get bigger and it's going to get a tension pneumothorax. So abstract 12 is conservative management of occult pneumothorax in mechanically ventilated patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis from Journal of Acute Care Surgery. And they basically said, sticking a chest tube in all those people results in an adverse event about 20% of the time not sticking a chest tube in all those people about 6% of the time. So I'm no math genius, but 6 is less than 20. And if this study is true, or this meta-analysis is true, then probably conservative management is best. Having said that, if somebody has a pneumothorax and positive pressure ventilation, there is the possibility that it's going to get worse. So what they suggest, which I think is really good, is that you put a note on the chart and on the end of the bed that says, this person has a pneumothorax, it's a cult, we're not treating it with a chest tube, so if something goes wrong, the airway pressures go up and that kind of stuff, maybe you want to put in a chest tube because sometimes they're going to degenerate. But overall, if you're a betting person, you should bet on conservative, i.e. don't slap the chest tube in immediately, management. And we've actually followed this literature over time and now even ATLS says this is an acceptable alternative to immediate throwing in of said chest tube. Abstract 14. And lastly, we're going to do abstract 14, which was single site sampling versus multiple site sampling for blood cultures, a retrospective clinical study from the Journal of Clinical Microbiology. Here's a situation. You've got somebody and you've got a suspicion of they've got something bad. I don't know, endocarditis. In the past, what you'd do if you really wanted to find that bug was you'd ask the nurse or the nurse would sample from multiple sites. But has it ever really been compared against doing one site really well? Well, in this study, which is not perfect in any sense of the imagination, but does suggest that single-site blood cultures done well has the same yield for true positives and contamination rates as it does for multiple sites with less sticks. So maybe, as Sanjay says, the docs aren't going to be talking about this too much, but the nurses probably are. Of course, if you can do one good blood culture draw and your yield is just as good as doing it all over the place, and the patient feels better, tastes great, less filling, come on. I would really like to see this a follow-up study. This was sort of before and after, maybe a randomized trial, to see if this really works, because that could actually make our patients benefit substantially and reduce the amount of nursing time. So I'm just saying. 
It's a good one to end them because you know what? Uh, this is the ultra ultra summary. There are many more papers. If you want to be a literature legend, what? A literature legend, what? You listen to the whole show. You don't listen to the whole show. You don't listen to it every month, multiple times. Something wrong with you. You might need an MRI. You might need a CAT scan with all the associated radiation. If you want to know this stuff, do the right thing. Get our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared. A literature legend, you know what I mean? You might need an MRI. You might need a CAT scan with all the associated radiation. If you want to know this stuff. Best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared. Do the right thing. Legend. Legend. Herbert is out. It's time again for our mailbag. Let's visit the home office in Chupadero, New Mexico. Bienvenido a Chupadero, a place I love Chupadero. It's a great place to visit. <laughs> so much to see there. Oh. All right, Jed. So uh, what do we got on tap? What, what do we get sent in to us that we need to get answered? So here's our letter from our listener this month. It says, I have run into several cases of presentations concerning for DVTs and PEs in patients already on DOAX. There seems to be a lot of practice variation for these patients. Some physicians I know don't work them up because they're already on treatment. Others just obtain imaging because certainly D-dimer isn't validated with DOAC use. Still more confusing is what to do if you find one. Could you do a piece on an approach to the diagnosis and treatment of suspected failed anticoagulant use? Thanks, Stanton Royer. Well, thanks, Stanton, for that good question. Absolutely. And if we're talking clots, Jen, we're going to have to hit up Tom DeLore to find out what the experts would do. Here's what he had to say on the topic. Hello from uh, Portland, Oregon. And this is a a very common question we face uh, in hematology is how to handle potential recurrence or breakthrough thrombosis when somebody's on anticoagulation. The first point, I think, as far as workup is this is actually pretty rare. If you look at the clinical studies, only about 2 to 3% of patients over the span of three to six months actually have a recurrence. Obviously, in the, quote, real world, end of quote, this may be a little bit higher, but still, it's a pretty unusual uh, thing. So our pretest probability needs to be low. Now, there's obviously certain patients at higher risk of breakthrough. And these would be patients with cancer or those with very severe antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Now, in somebody on anticoagulation who's just recently had a uh, large deep venous thrombosis, leg swelling, leg pain can be recurrent and can be a difficult situation. And probably in this situation, it is reasonable to get repeat Dopplers. Again, post-thrombotic syndrome can happen early, within a few months, and lead to symptoms very reminiscent of a DVT. What's often more perplexing is the patient who's had a pulmonary embolism and presents uh, with chest pain, shortness of breath. Now, we're recognizing that a substantial uh, number of patients after pulmonary embolism have what's been called the post-PE syndrome, where pain, shortness of breath, exercise intolerance can be pretty common after this. In fact, up to 50% of patients at six months who've had a PE say they feel worse than a baseline. So it's important to ask if uh, these symptoms are dramatically worse or just perhaps accentuation post-PE syndrome. Now, while there's no clinical trials, most coagulation experts do think a D-dimer is valuable in this situation. It would seem to be rather unlikely for somebody with a major breakthrough thrombosis 
thrombosis so intense, it's breaking through anticoagulation, but yet not showing any activation of coagulation as far as a D-dimer. So although not testing this situation, I think it can be a pretty valuable test. When I'm called about a breakthrough clot, what do I ask myself? Well, the first question is, is it really a breakthrough? Now, if somebody has a DVT, they're actually at risk of pulmonary embolism for about the first week or so. And the breakthrough rate of this can be as high as 5%. So if Jane is diagnosed with the DVT on Monday, presents Friday with chest pain, shortness of breath, and has a new PE, that's part of the natural history. And that to me is not a breakthrough. Another thing we've discovered, and well, it's actually rediscovered, is deepness thrombosis can grow and shrink on therapy. There's a variety of studies that were done in the early age of venography and Dopplers, summarized in an excellent article by my colleague Sven Olson in research practice thrombosis hemostasis in 2019, that actually showed in the first couple of weeks of therapy, anywhere from 10 to 30% of patients actually had some clot extension. This actually was just part of the natural history of the thrombosis. So we have to remember deep venous thrombosis is not a static thing. They can grow and shrink. So if I'm called and there's maybe a few centimeters extension of a clot, first it was non-occlusive, now it's occlusive, especially early on in therapy, I don't get that worked up. To me, it really needs to be a major new vessel or a different limb or growth, and people quote arbitrary numbers like greater than seven centimeters. Or if it's a pulmonary embolism, maybe after two weeks of adequate therapy in somebody has a deep venous thrombosis. So that's the first question I ask. Is it really a breakthrough clot? Then, of course, the most difficult question is, was the patient adherent in medications? And there's very many approaches to this. Now, if we lived in a perfect world, we would just send levels and they would return in real time. Well, we know we don't live in a perfect world. I send off a PIXABAN level and I get it back two weeks later. That may help the hematologist in clinic, but not somebody in a busy emergency room. Now, INR and PTTs can be erratic. We know they're not sensitive or specific, but if somebody says they're taking dibigatran and they have a totally normal PTT, that makes me a little suspicious. On the other hand, somebody's saying they're taking Xeralto and their INR is up, maybe they will. One thing we see increasingly is patients on the wrong DOAC dose. I see a lot of patients on dibigatran, Prodaxa, only taking it once a day because they actually get such stomach upset with BID therapy. And I'm seeing the same thing with Apixaban, with people instead of taking it once a day, they're taking it twice a day. And again, dosing is important, especially with Rivaroxavan. There can be confusion with dosing. And maybe they're only taking 15 milligrams a day instead of 20 milligrams a day. Finally, just simply ask the patient. Most patients I've seen have been pretty honest about that, not been adherent with medication. The med was too expensive. They didn't get it filled. And then finally, if you're really suspicious, you can always check pharmacy records. But I think this is important, finding out medication history. Another thing, if somebody's on warfarin, look at the INR history. I've seen a lot of patients who, when they've had their breakthrough thrombosis, their INR was 2.3, 2.2. But you look back at the past month or two, and they're 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. And just for some reason, was therapeutic the day they presented. So the advantage we have, at least with warfarin, is we got a track record we can figure out. How do we treat? I would have to say the vast majority of patients I see who truly have a breakthrough thrombosis, I stick on low molecular weight heparin at therapeutic dosing. 
they have an acute clot, they need to be treated. I can figure out or the hematologist can figure out later what's going on and what to do for long-term therapy. But I think there's no harm in just sticking the patient on low molecular heparin and sending them out. Now, what if they've got cancer and they're on good low molecular heparin and they broke through? There's actually what is pretty standard in the hemoc world is we simply raise the dose by 25%. So if somebody was on 100 milligrams BID of Lovenox, we change them to 125 BID. So with breakthroughs, we go with low molecular weight heparin, increase the low molecular weight heparin. Sometimes you just discover that it's a valve patient who should never be on a DOAC. It's severe, what we call triple positive APLA, who honestly never should be on a DOAC. And sometimes, especially the valve patient, just starting warfarin can be a good strategy. Or their compliance concern, the DOAC was too expensive. Warfarin in that case may be reasonable. Okay, again, these aren't really true breakthroughs, but adherence issues. So if it's a real breakthrough, I go with low molecular weight heparin. Now, when I see these patients in clinic, and maybe just a word about what causes breakthrough thrombosis, cancer is by far number one. New cancers or a past history of uh, current history of cancer is by far the most common cause. An interesting burn point is actually vasculitis. If you got inflammation of the blood vessel, that's pretty active. Anticoagulation is not going to help that. Rare squared would be paratrinsal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. We certainly see this in antiphospholipid antibodies. I would have to say I have a few patients. I never figured out why. Stick them on low molecular weight heparin for six months. Then we change anticoagulation. So I think really to summarize, I think about who I'm going to work up. I do think a D-dimer is helpful. I believe it's important to work up because you're going to change therapy. I really want to make sure they have a new clot, that they're adherent with medication. And I think it's a pretty reasonable strategy to uh, put these patients on low molecular weight heparin afterwards. All right, Swami, that is it for the mailbag this month. We will look for more good letters. We look forward to your feedback, and we'll see you back here next month. Keep those letters coming. I'm just the postman. Mega, 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 monster. Like that? <laughs> Jan, it's time for the mega summary. Let's sum up everything that we dove into. This was a really particularly chalk full episode. We got a lot to get through. Mega get through. Let's do it starting with the rural medicine piece. Rural medicine, always a pleasure. This month, Vanessa and Mel talked about a case of ruptured globe that Vanessa had. Great case. It was a guy who comes in with trauma, intoxicated, not that uncommon. He said that he had been attacked and kicked in the head and he had lost some vision in half of his visual field. So she takes a look at this guy. He's got bruising all over. He's got swelling. He's got sort of a fluid coming out of his eye. He's got a big subconjunctival hemorrhage. But the pupils looked okay. There wasn't any proptosis. And all she had was x-ray. And so her x-ray shows her bilateral orbital rim fractures. So she ends up coming up with the diagnosis of ruptured globe in her typical rural setting. So this guy is going to have to be transferred. So, of course, it's kind of about how you transfer someone with a ruptured globe and how you have to protect the eye, et cetera. So the key elements, if you do diagnose ruptured globe, is, as I mentioned, one eye protection. In this case, they used a disposable mug 
and some tape. So you kind of use whatever you can get to cover up that eye and make sure it's protected. Number two is prophylactic antibiotics. They gave vancomycin and ceftriaxone in this case. Number three, importantly, is antiemetics. You want to prevent an increase in intraocular pressure. And then number four is anxiolytics and kind of keeping the patient calm and sort of laying in the bed and not moving around and being agitated. And then, of course, there's the tetanus, life-saving tetanus prophylaxis that we have to throw in there too. So it turns out this patient, of course, had a bit of a complicated course. In addition to his cholobructure, they had to deal with some you know, withdrawal and the intoxication issues that came along with it. But it was a great review of the basics of the management of globe rupture. It's a good one to review, Jim, because I think most of these patients do need to be transferred. Even if you work in a big city hospital with ophthalmology, many ophthalmologists will tell you, I don't do globe rupture. You got to get that person to a super specialist. That's what happens in my institution. I had one of these just recently. Talked to my ophthalmologist and she's, she said, you know, we don't do those. You got to send them to the big university center where they can take care of these patients. And unfortunately, these patients don't always have the best outcomes, but the best way for us to increase the probability of a good outcome is to get them to that specialist as quickly as possible and protect that eye. Really key points here. And remember that you don't want to put a patch on the eye because that creates pressure. It's got to be a little bit of space and then protect it. So really good tips. And in spite of the fact that I don't work in a rural setting, we also do not have the proper device to put on that eye that gives a little (laughs) bit of space. And so we also use a Dixie cup in order to do that. So uh, I like the fact that no matter where you are in the world, if you're in the emergency room, you're probably using a Dixie cup to protect the eye. Dixie helps you do more for the people you care for. Scott Weingott. Absolutely. This month in Critical Care Mailbag, Scott and I talked about the crashing asthmatic patient. We've talked about crashing asthma in the past. This was a little bit different because Scott really believes that there are two types of asthmatic patients when you talk about the severe ones. Yes, there are those patients with bronchospastic asthma, the tight, silent chest. They're not really moving any air. It's very hard to bag the patients or get any air movement. But there's also those patients who have severe respiratory muscle fatigue. They are moving air, but they're having trouble doing that because they're getting more and more tired. They get hypercapnic. They get acidosis that weakens the respiratory muscles. And so the issue isn't just that there's bronchospasm. It's the fact that the patients are so tired They can't really do the work of breathing that they need. And so in those crashing asthmatic patients, it's really critical to get bi-level on these patients, to get some kind of respiratory support so you can hopefully bridge that patient and they don't need to be intubated. This will improve the hypoxemia. It'll improve the hypercapnia, which will improve the acidemia, and it'll make the patient breathe a little bit better. It'll rest them so that they can then comply with all of the other things that you need to do. Setting up that bi-level is important, and it's important for us to know how to do it so we don't have to wait for the respiratory therapist. And understanding that some patients, because of the hypercapnia, are going to be a little bit altered. They're also hypoxemic. That might alter them a little bit more, makes it hard to comply with that non-invasive. And you might actually have to facilitate that maybe with a little bit of ketamine. That can really help. What you don't want to do is give them something that's going to depress their respiratory drive even more. So you have to be really careful about how you do this. But if you supply that non-invasive, in addition to all of your maximal medical management, you can really turn these patients around pretty quickly. Yeah, I thought this was a good talk. I like how we focus on what are the things we can do to prevent intubating these patients. That's definitely not a good thing to do because their problem isn't getting the air in, it's getting the air out. So the focus on the BiPAP or the non-invasive ventilation, how to facilitate it, I really appreciated. The other key thing to me with asthma patients is 
Don't be afraid of epinephrine. It's a good drug for them. You know, start it early. Don't be afraid of giving it. It could be something that actually saves you also from intubation. Absolutely. Our next segment was on tick-borne illnesses, Gita Pensa and Jesse Werner diving into this topic and really comprehensive review of all the things that we need to think about, all the different diseases. It's not just Lyme disease, which we have covered in a previous MRAP. They actually dive into all of the other tick-borne illnesses we need to talk about. And one of the things that they really concentrated on is knowing where the patient has been to help to figure out what they could possibly have. So they really dive into where the patient was and what symptoms they're going to have, acknowledging that most of these patients are going to come in with flu-like symptoms, headache, body aches, fever. And if you don't get that history of hiking, of a possible bite from one of these insects, you're not really going to be able to pick up on the fact that you have to worry about those tick-borne illnesses. Your labs can sometimes help, but not always. And it's really having that clinical suspicion that the patient could have a tick-borne illness that's going to send you down that route. Now, they get into things like tick paralysis and alpha-gal, which, Jan, we've talked about before. That is that scary red meat allergy-inducing infection that I'm trying to avoid as best I can. They also talk about starry and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So go back, listen to this one, because there's so much good detail on what to look for in each of these, how to tease them out, and then how to get them treated. Yeah, these are tough because I agree with you. A, you have to get the good history. B, these labs are really hard to do. If you, I guess if you live somewhere where Lyme is endemic, you probably have these like readily available to you. But like here in California, for example, I can't get these tick panels. You know, you can't just order these because it's very unusual. So you may have to talk to your ID specialist, for example, to get approval for these special send out labs. Maybe your hospital doesn't even offer that service. So so, you know, it really is a diagnosis that's very clinical based on history and physical. And you may empirically give something like Doxy if you really suspect it, because you're not going to have a lab test to tell you that this is what it is. And one of the fortunate things, Jan, is that most of these can be treated with a course of doxycycline. Makes it kind of easy, with the exception of babesiosis and tularemia, where you got to think about a different agent. But most of them, Doxy is going to be the right agent to use. One of the other things that was really worrisome to me is that co-infection isn't that uncommon. So they can have Lyme plus babesiosis, which I don't know, Jen, that just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. And you know what? Ticks are gross. What? Just <laughs> You're gross. I've had a tick once, Jen, and uh, I don't want to talk about the removal process. It was not fun. Yes. And I had to do it myself and I don't ever want to do it again. And the whole time I was just thinking, this is super gross and I don't ever want to be in this position again. Dr. Jenny Ferris. All right, this month, Jenny Farah and Mel talked about a great EMS topic, which was agitated delirium or excited delirium and pre-hospital sedation. So certainly, it's a little bit of a controversial topic because there's not a lot of evidence to guide what we do. And it's not clear exactly how much of excited or agitated delirium, how much of that syndrome is due to hypoxia from patient restraint. So we start to cross over into the world of law enforcement and how they deal with patients versus a constellation of features that have to do with the catecholamines and the sympathetic surge. And so we don't know exactly what causes what, but we do know that this syndrome has been around for a long time. It was first described actually back in 1849. So this concept's been around for a long time, and they know that from post-mortem exams of these patients after they die, they find that the anatomy is actually normal, the coronary arteries, et cetera. So the theory is that this is due to dopamine excess which then kind of leads to a loss of autonomic function, so just sort of a crash of your whole sympathetic system leading to cardiovascular collapse. We know what this looks like. It is a combination of psychomotor agitation and delirium, hyperthermia. There's this hypersympathetic syndrome, and it obviously puts patients at high risk of cardiac arrest. Then you throw in 
a little bit of hypoxia in there and you could really have a bad combination. An important, important risk factor, of course, is sympathomimetic overdose. We all know that that's often where this comes from. Now, early sedation, we think, might reduce progression to cardiac arrest. And I think that that's, we've all accepted that that's true. But we also realize that it can put patients at risk for respiratory arrest and respiratory compromise. So exactly when do you do the sedation? Who does it? That's a lot of what they talk about in this piece. Certainly when we receive these patients in the emergency department, the priorities are to make sure we have good IV access. We need to have continuous cardiac monitoring the best that we can. Pulse ox, pulse oximetry, very important. We want to check glucose because, of course, we're dealing with an altered mental status, so let's not forget that. And then we want to be prepared. If there's a respiratory or a cardiac arrest, we want to anticipate that that could happen and we're ready for it. We want to check the temperature and treat the hyperthermia. We want to seek out and treat rhabdomyolysis. Of course, we want to give IV hydration. And then the question of sedation. And the truth is, there is no evidence to tell us exactly what is the best agent. So we've got the options are ketamine, benzos, and even people would argue maybe droperidol, but there's really, again, no, no clear evidence-based winner. And then, of course, we want to think about what is the cause of this hypersympathetic drive? Is it drugs? Is it infection? Could there be hyperthyroidism? Could there be withdrawal syndromes? We have to keep our differential broad and make sure we don't overlook any of those other causes. We've had some great segments about how to deal with agitated delirium with the agitated patient. And the agitated delirium patient is not your run-of-the-mill agitated patient. Some of those patients you can talk down, you give them a little bit of a benzo, you give them a little bit of haloperidol or dropiridol, and they kind of chill out. These patients are a little bit different. And the key really is in getting them sedated so you can get the workup done and figure out what's going on. That really has to be where our push is. And so, I don't know, Jan, when I see these patients, and maybe it's once a year, they're not that common, I'm almost always reaching for ketamine because I know I can reliably get the patient sedated pretty rapidly, which means that I can then get my workup done as rapidly as possible, figure out what's going on. And it's hard to get a cardiac monitor get a glucose check, an EKG, and get a rectal temp in somebody who has agitated delirium until you get them sedated. Dr. Amol Matu. We were back with Amol in the cardiology corner talking about a chest pain update in the journal of the American College of Cardiology. And honestly, Amol had a lot of problems with this paper, although he also said there were some good things in here. One of the good things was that a lot of different organizations came together in making the guidelines, SAEM, AHA, ACC, the chest group, But one of the problems with that was that there was only one EM physician representing an EM organization, and AAEM and ASEP were not represented, which is really a problem because we're the ones who are dealing with these chest pain patients first. In fact, we're dealing with more of these chest pain patients because we select which ones go to the cardiologist afterwards. Amal points out some gross errors in the document, which you can go back and listen because he was clearly pretty peeved. And what it proves, Jan, is that Amal does actually read all 163 pages of these articles. He doesn't miss a beat when he looks at these things. So he does point out some of those gross errors, but then he gets into the places where he really disagrees with what the authors were saying. One of those spots is the atypical chest pain. They want to get rid of that term, which Amal likes, but doesn't like what they replace it with. They want to replace atypical chest pain with non-cardiac chest pain, which is kind of the opposite of what we want to do in emergency medicine, where atypical chest pain is to us, an atypical presentation of ACS. That's a, that's a possible thing we want to think about. Calling all of those patients who don't come in with left-sided chest pain radiating to the left arm with shortness of breath and diaphoresis and nausea as non-cardiac chest pain, you're going to miss a lot of ACS if you do that. So Amal really has a problem there. And the other one that he really had a problem with is the idea of a warranty period. 
not necessarily the idea of it, but the fact that the authors are arguing for us calling it a warranty period, which we can't give. We can't give a patient a warranty period, but he also does point out some good stuff here. And some of that is the fact that they focus on a good history and physical examination. Amal loves that. They focus on recognizing the signs and symptoms of ACS in women that may be a little bit different than the traditional things that we're taught. And they also talk a little bit about equity in our evaluations with Black, Latinx, South Asian, and Medicaid patients. They might get a less aggressive workup. In fact, the data says that they do, and we need to avoid that bias. And then finally, one of the things he really liked was the fact that the document endorses the idea that there are these patients with very low-risk ACS where you can send them home because additional workup in the hospital is unlikely to really give anything beneficial to the patient. I thought this was a great review. Uh, you know, Alma is the nicest guy, and I love that he got very irritated with this article. You know, the fact that he's like the rest of us, and there are things that can get under his skin. I really did. I think there are some real pros and cons. I agree with him here. Some of the things are just crazy that they put in here. But, you know, particularly to me, the disparity, acknowledging the disparities in care, whether it be different ethnic groups and genders and people who are underinsured and making, you know, recognizing that we have biases there. You know, the cardiologists even recognizing that I think is a good thing because I think it's really, really true. And so I was particularly happy that that was included. But boy, there are some controversial things in this paper. It's a good step in the right direction, Jan. We obviously need to do a lot more work in terms of equity, but at least they're acknowledging it. This is the first time I'm seeing that kind of acknowledgement in one of these documents. So that's a, that's a good first step. We've got a lot more work to do. Inaba. Our next segment, Jan, was the near hanging injuries, the one that I kid you not, we got at least half a dozen, if not more, requests to have Kenji talk about this. So we finally did it. Like you said, it's a two-parter because there's so much good stuff in here. Yeah, they really did cover this very comprehensively. And of course, you know, you have a patient like this roll in, you start with the basics, right? So they walk through the A, Bs, and Cs of assessing these patients. And when it comes to airway and sort of your first steps, of course, C-spine protection is essential. But the truth is that C-spine injury and C-spine fractures is actually pretty unlikely in most of these regular hanging type patients because these aren't judicial hangings, right, which is where hangman's fractures, et cetera, are described. These are really incomplete hangings for the most part, and these are often related, unfortunately, to suicide attempts. So C-spine injury is less likely, but of course, we're still going to protect the C-spine and treat it like someone who may have a C-spine injury. You know, intubation and assessing the airway is obviously key in these patients. So you want to look for things like strider, you want to be conservative in your approach to the airway. You want to have concern for impending airway compromise. Maybe you don't see it at this moment, but you know that that edema is going to come soon. So looking for things like subcutaneous emphysema and intubating earlier rather than later when you see some airway changes happening is important because obviously injury to the laryngeal tracheal complex is common. And then they talk a lot about alteration of mental status that these patients can be altered. They may also be completely asymptomatic from a mental status point of view, but if they are altered, you also want to often intubate them early to facilitate their workup. And even patients who are agitated, combative, can be really dangerous in this scenario. You may find that you have a hard time intubating these patients because of injuries. And so if you're having a tough time, a surgical approach should be taken early, whether it's crike, whether it's jet ventilation, if you're dealing with a pediatric patient, even if it has to be a trach and you have to go lower, they talk about all of those possible approaches. And then when it comes to circulation, you know, if you have a hypotensive patient who's been in one of these hanging situations, it's not usually from some kind of trauma. You know, they're not going to have 
ruptured their spleen or something like that. So it's very unlikely that you're going to have hypotension. So you want to be careful there and think about maybe there's a toxic exposure. Maybe there's been some kind of ingestion that's, uh, that has happened along with this unfortunate injury. So you want to think about that. And you want to be judicious, a little bit judicious with fluids because of the edema that can happen. And then we're going to move on to what are the next things I need to know? We're going to ask things like, do you have any odynophagia? Are you having any dysphagia, dysphonia, any dyspnea? All those kinds of questions. And then the collateral information is important. Was this a suicide attempt? Is there a consideration for comorbid toxic ingestions? We want to not miss that. So they move through what are the exam findings we want to look at, and they emphasize that the absence of physical exam findings does not rule out the need for further evaluation. So if there's a concerning history, you want to go ahead and pursue the diagnostic workup, even if you aren't seeing things like petechiae on their mucous membranes or subconjunctival hemorrhage, some of the things that we look for in constriction injuries around the neck. And when it comes to diagnostic testing, what are the keys here? Well, certainly a chest x-ray is indicated. They talk a lot about CT head, and we certainly are generous with that, especially if there's been any alteration of mental status. And then, of course, the CT angiogram of the neck is probably the most important uh, scan here. And then a tox screen, again, thinking about co-ingestions if it's been a suicide attempt. In general, actually, these patients do pretty well. If they don't suffer a cardiac arrest, the prognosis is better than you might expect. There are a series of patients' case reports that demonstrate this, and so they talk about this. So that's a good news part of this whole kind of depressing story. In general, these are going to go to the ICU. And if they're asymptomatic and they have normal imaging, they can actually go home depending on what the actual circumstances were. The other controversial thing they talk about is how long would you observe them? And the truth is, we don't know. It is not actually evidence-based as to how long you observe them. So they discuss that a little bit too. And just to clarify, Jan, before Jeff LaPointe gets on top of us, when we say toxicology screen, we're talking about aspirin and acetaminophen, not a drug screen. We don't believe in using the drug screen here, but in aspirin and acetaminophen, you're basically working up this patient as any overdose patient because it could be overdose plus the hanging. That's really important to consider. And the thing that kind of surprised me in here, Jan, listening to this, was that I found Kenji's recommendations fairly conservative in terms of who he's going to image. And at first I thought, man, I can't believe Kenji's being so conservative about his approach. And then I said, you know, if Kenji, who sees a lot of these injuries, a lot more than I do, is being conservative, it probably means that we should all play it on the more conservative side and not get too reassured by the absence of physical exam findings or how good the patient looks at that point. If you're not going to do all of that imaging, then you really do need to watch the patient a little bit longer to make sure something doesn't develop. But I, I think this was a, a good piece to really remind us that it is important to be aggressive with your imaging and not aggressive with, it doesn't look like anything, this guy can go home. I think that's really an important take home. Our medical legal briefs this month was about myocarditis with Susie Demeester and Mike Weinstock. They start with a case presentation that's a young man who has, honestly, Jan, what looks like a viral syndrome. It looks like any kind of a flu presentation or, you know, over the last three years, any kind of COVID presentation, but then ends up with myocarditis and how difficult getting to that diagnosis can really be and how we really need to be clued into it as a possibility, but also understanding that it's going to look like a lot of the other patients that we see. And so we're not going to always catch this. But then they go from there into really reviewing all of the basics of myocarditis and how to make sure that we do diagnose more of these, making sure that we're thinking about them as a possibility in all of these patients and really understanding what workup's going to be helpful, recognizing that there is no non-invasive diagnostic test that can clinch the diagnosis of myocarditis. But an EKG might show some nonspecific findings. It might even show something that looks like cardiac ischemia. 
a troponin is usually going to be elevated. So if you see a troponin elevation in the setting of a flu-like syndrome, you really have to think about myocarditis. And once you identify myocarditis, most of these patients are going to be admitted. They're going to be held for observation to get an echo, to see a cardiologist. And even though many of them do quite well, some of them can decompensate. They can have electrical disturbances that can really put their life at risk. So if you recognize this, you probably want to admit the patient get them a cardiology consult, put them on a monitor, keep them on a monitor, and make sure you don't miss any of those things. Yeah, I find this diagnosis really scary. It's a very tricky thing. Like you said at the beginning, it can look like just a viral syndrome. And so this is one of those places where, you know, I actually understand when people are ordering EKGs and troponins on people where you're otherwise thinking, why are you ordering this? Well, myocarditis is tricky, and these are the things that are going to find it. So you know, I I have to say I walk away from this one a little bit scared and I'll probably order a few more troponins and EKGs on people I otherwise wouldn't have because of this diagnosis. Rick's Rants! This month in Rick's Rants, Rick had an opportunity to talk with a really interesting person, Dr. Amish Shah, who is an emergency physician and turns out is an elected Arizona state representative. And Dr. Shah was, I thought this was fascinating, talked about how he got into politics. A very interesting story. And he talks about how his real life experiences have led to legislative bills in his state, things like non-retaliation for people in groups who complained about stuff. And he talked about how those types of stories evolved and how having real life patient stories, colleague stories can turn into actual legislative action. If you're interested in that kind of intersection of physicians and politics, I thought this was really a great listen. It's really interesting because I think that many of us are looking for something in addition to the medicine that we practice to kind of keep our careers going. And also our interests are so varied and why not have more emergency physicians representing us statewide, nationwide? What a great idea. And it really will get some people who know a little bit more about what's going on on the ground into policy setting. And you're right, Dr. Shah puts together some good legislation, like you said, about retaliation against whistleblowers, but also laws protecting healthcare workers from assault, which you know he points out in Arizona at the time that he was elected to office, assaulting a healthcare worker was below, in terms of a felony level, below assaulting an animal. And he says, you know, these are leftovers where no one's really been looking at it. No one really addresses it. And we thought, obviously, it was very important to address. So I really think this is an interesting take on what you can do with your emergency medicine degree and what, and what other fields you might be prepared for to really represent your patients as well as your colleagues. <laughs> Jen, our final piece of the month was Jess Mason sitting down with Ali Raja talking about nasal bone fractures. And I love when Ali is on. I love when Jess and Ali talk about these topics because radiology is a little bit, a little bit of a mysterious art to us. Let's be honest. I mean, if it's a plain film of a chest or a plain film of a long bone, we're pretty good at reading those. But a lot of radiology is a bit of a mystery and we rely on our radiologists. So why not up our game by talking to an expert? And Ali is exactly that. He's, he's an expert in emergency medicine and He's got that fantastic radiology background, and he goes through these nasal bone fractures and when we need to image and what we're looking for and what the ideal imaging tests are, really focusing on CT scan because we don't get a lot of plain films of the nose anymore, and they're probably not very necessary, but there are some patients where a CT scan can be useful, especially if you're looking for other concomitant injuries. So he gets into how useful these different imaging modalities are, when to choose to do any imaging modality, and of course, since we're talking radiology, he does mention ultrasound, but Jan, I'll be honest with you, I've never ultrasounded a nose. I know. I actually, I was, 
I sort of laughed and smiled to myself when they were talking about ultrasounding the nose because I was just picturing somebody like gooping up this like swollen <laughs> nose and then trying to like ultrasound it and the patient going, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> they, they're expecting some kind of x-ray and you're like probing around with your ultrasound, pushing on it. You know, it doesn't sound great. But, you know, I thought this was a valuable segment. I think these nasal, nasal bone fractures are way over imaged. We get a lot of patients referred for these to our, you know, trauma center and we really don't do much for them. I think that, you know, checking for nasal septal hematoma is important for sure. Thinking about other facial fractures are important, but the nasal bone fracture itself is more a concern to patients than it is to us in terms of real emergencies. It's a great segment. I think it really makes us think critically of why and when we're ordering imaging for nasal bone fractures. And Jan, that's it for the month. We had a lot of stuff in there, really kind of running the gamut of emergency medicine. You and I will, of course, be back in June. We'll be back in June with a really, again, chock full list of segments to dive into, to talk about and share with everybody. Absolutely. And I want you to enjoy your birthday month, as will I. It's going to be a fun month. Enough. May is awesome. And we'll see everybody in June. All right. And don't forget to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. Okay, Sean, so we're going to talk about the cheery topic of online suicide kits. So the symptoms can be very vague, unfortunately. And when you look at the literature, the most common complaint is going to be dyspnea. I've personally especially noted a tendency for beginners to want to use Vicryl liberally for epidermal closure, and it's probably not accidental. She was a patient with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis and had chronic back pain that was worsening. She also describes subjective fevers and even new paresthesias. Hey, M-Rappers, congratulations if you're still listening because you found the May Easter egg. And you know what that means. Why? It means besides Jan and Swami's birthdays, May is full of historical anniversaries like the joining of the Transcontinental Railroad on May 10th, 1869. Or the death of Paul Revere, which was May 10th, 1818 or the capturing of Fort Ticonderoga in New York, which happened on May 10th, 1775. Yeah, if you weren't aware, there was a militia called the Green Mountain Boys, and they captured the fort. They came down from the mountains, and they captured the fort from the British. And the leader of that militia was a guy named... Ethan Allen. And Ethan Allen had a huge chin. And 143 years after he died, they named a furniture company after him. What are you talking about, man? Talking about how it's May, and we should be happy. The May sale. Now at Ethan Allen. You know what else happened in May? Does this have anything to do with emergency medicine? No. Then why are you telling me? The other us thing that happened in May, that the Irish singer-songwriter Bono, who was head of U2, was born in Dublin on May 10th, 1960. And he popped out and his mom said, I'm going to name him Paul David Hewson. And Bono said, Nah, I want to be Bono. Listen, your Easter eggs are taking way too long. There's a lot of things that happen in May. What else happened in May that has to do with emergency medicine? On May 10th, 1879, a 455-pound meteorite fell to the earth in Emmett County, only a few miles north of Esterville, Iowa, and became known as the Esterville Meteorite. So what? Meteorites are usually made out of iron, and iron is important for bringing oxygen to all parts of your body. Booyah. Brought it back to medicine. Boom. Merry Christmas.